Well, the Germans could have invented that at the end of the war, and they would have won the war. The following podcast may contain spicy adult language, sensitive topics, and dangerous ideas. If you're delicate and easily offended, you may want to tune in elsewhere. Also, maybe just take a nap. You're also more than welcome to complain directly to the management via email. If it's entertaining enough, we might even read it on the podcast and mock you mercilessly. If outrage continues for more than four hours, please consult a physician. Uh, And that's the cold open. (laughs) There it is. That's how we're starting it off today. Uh, Welcome, gangsters. To episode three of the Sprue Cutters Union podcast. I, my name is Will Pattison. It's morning here. It's noon where our partner in crime, Tracy Hancock, is over on the east coast of the United States. And Hello! Way, way across the pond there is the boss of this thing, Mr. Chris Meddings. Uh, Stop calling me boss. Hey, come on. This, you know, look, this thing was your brainchild. You got, you got to, I want to make sure everybody knows. When this thing goes up in flames, it's on you, man. Yeah, when, it, when it goes tits up, you're the boss. <laughs> Quick, push him out in front. <laughs> Tracy and I have plausible deniability. I think after today's show, there could well be pitchforks too. Yeah, there could be. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to get into some good shit today, I think. We've got a great interview coming up on this episode with Al Murray, uh, who is a hilarious comedian over there in the UK. Um, and as it turns out, a very interesting guy and a, and a, and a, and a serious model maker on top of that. So that's going to be really good. Um, and we're going to, you know, we're going to do our usual thing of rapping about the usual things in between. So it's going to be a good episode. Al is definitely a, a, a fantastic comedian. Um, if you're trying to, to figure out where to watch some of his stuff. Uh, I think he was in season five of the the UK show Taskmaster, which you can find on YouTube. It's a fantastic show. And he is uh, he's one of the highlights of the cast for that season. It's, it's pretty fantastic. That's where I first got to know his work and then um, found out that he's a, a serious, serious historian with uh, his own podcast, and a really interesting person to talk to and uh, a model maker as well. I mean, he's he's all things to all people. So stay tuned for that coming up later. But first, let's uh, see what everyone's been doing this week. Tracy, what have you been up to? Oh, you know, hiring and firing and uh, <laughs> <laughs> just outside of the rigors of, of work. I think it's been two weeks since I've touched a model. Um, and I managed to wrap up the the pen wash on the Japanese tank that I'm working on, uh, and I'm thinking uh, pretty actively about what my next steps are, uh, as it is a um, a vehicle that never saw combat, but just judging from the photos that are available, which are not a lot, it it saw use. Um, there's there's some wear to the paint. There's some uh, dented up fenders and things like that. So. It's not going to be completely clean, but it's going to be a, I think. It's not going to be beat to shit either. Yeah. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't give you the easy way out with weathering. So the construction, it's a fine molds kit. Uh, construction was fantastic. I added very little detail. Um, just a few things that I could pick out on the photos that they seem to have missed, but 
the fit was great. It went together like a dream and very quickly. But yeah, my next challenge is going to be how to minimally weather this thing, but still make it really interesting and and something compelling to look at. Now, now wait a minute. What 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 exactly do you mean when you say the easy way out with weathering? That that sounds like one of those you people kind of comments. No, it's just what I do. You know, I know what I, you know, I know the route that I would take to do a certain type of finish. And it's not necessarily that it's routine or or paint by numbers or anything, but I'm trying to, you know, push myself a little bit to not rely on my usual way of doing things. And you're, you're getting out of your comfort zone is what I'm hearing you say. Well, I don't feel uncomfortable about doing it. So it's it's more that I'm pushing myself to... Uh, try some new things and achieve something by maybe some different means than I normally do. Uh, the problem for me is, is cerebrally, I don't, I don't have a hundred percent of an idea of how I want it to look in the end. And until yeah. I do, you know, that's, that's kind of where my head is right now. Even if I'm not on the modeling bench, you know, we all talk about, you know, the weathering around you in everyday life, whether it's a, uh, cement mixing truck going down the highway or, or the crap in the sidewalk and, and weathering on the side of a building that doesn't see a lot of sunlight, whatever. I mean, there's, there's weathering all around you. So I feel like I'm constantly looking uh, maybe subconsciously at all that stuff, trying to find my path on this thing. Um, but I would say that uh, the next chance I'll have to sit down is probably going to be in a couple of days. And I feel like by then I'll have, somewhat of an idea of, of where I'm going. Well, this goes back to what we were talking to Matt about in episode two, you know, about not just doing the same old, same old routine on everything you model. So this is a, like you said, it's a great opportunity to do something different, but that requires thinking and planning. Even if the doing different means doing less. Mm. I mean, I know what you're saying because, we, you know, weathering is certainly not easy. But when you have that as your primary focus, like that's your thing, that's what you love, like that, it, it is for me. I, I just, you know, I get exhaust stains on the brain. And when I start trying to think about doing something that's less weathered, that's a challenge, even though it's less work. And and, and it's, I, I found that it's hard. Like when I did my... Uh, I'm not sure it is less work, though. I don't think it is less work. That's what I was going to say. Well, I, it, less it's it's like le, it's it's less actual activity but it's it doesn't have to maybe be. more energy no i, I mean but you're, 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 but you're getting yourself that's you're it. getting yourself out of a rut kind of a thing or maybe not even a rut's not the right word it's just that you're changing into a different mode of thinking and, and it takes more energy even though it might actually be less actual well, touching model. no okay okay no that that's not that's not what i'm trying to to say so okay. for me, it's not going to be less actual brush on model time. Okay. It's going to be a less obvious effect, but with everything that I do, I, man, I really love like real subtle patina. And I don't think anything is, unless your car just comes out of the car wash, nothing is clean. You All know, right. a, a light coating of dust and, and a, quick rain shower and you get, you know, disruption of dust with the rain. Like there's, there's patina all around you, whether it's in the concrete you're walking on or the dirty vehicle driving by you. So the end result is what at first glance may appear to be a, a cleaner vehicle that took less time to weather. But 
my goal is, and I know myself and how I go about things, I'm going to spend a lot of time kind of creating like super subtle patina that really rewards like the deep look. Telling your story with fewer elements. Yeah, that's hard. Well, telling your story with, with more subtle elements. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that I had, uh, I had a fantastic instructor in, in art school, and it this is something that ties into uh, a lot of the discussions that we've had. But one of the things that he was really great about teaching you is is that whatever you're working on, whether it's a painting or a model, you have focal points. You have you have areas of interest that you want people to linger on and really get in there and look at, and then you direct their eye to the next one with kind of a, a you know something a little more subdued and quiet. Like you you give focal points, you you direct the eye, but if you have something that's just screaming every every piece every inch of this model is screaming, look at me, look at me, look at me. It's really fucking hard to look at. It's hard to appreciate because there's nowhere for your eye to rest. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to take stuff in and then you, you definitely want focal points, but you're, you're less, uh, I don't know, you're less uh, demanding areas, uh, you know, that you demand less from the viewer in terms of, of what they're, what you want them to look at still have to be pretty interesting. Yeah. So it's a balance. Uh, and it's something I like doing. And it's something, again, you could talk about what you see in other people's work. It's it's a lesson that's not easy to learn that not every single piece of your model has to be the thing that that, that screams, look at me, look at me, look at me. Well, it's like um, music. There's diminuendo and there's crescendo. It's all beautiful. It's all perfectly crafted. But it's not all at the same pitch all the time. It has to have some dynamism and variety in it yeah yeah absolutely i'm thinking about paul budzik's work as a great example of this uh, you know because it, there's people who say that his work is is not as exciting it's not a, you know not as dramatic as as you know maybe some of the stuff that we see from aircraft modelers who do a lot of weathering but i don't find his work boring at all because i see the craftsmanship I mean, it's it's certainly more subtle, but when you look at, for example, the way he perfectly scales a canopy frame, I think that's exciting. I think that's cool because I understand what it took for him to do that. And he achieves, for me anyway, an overall look that's really compelling without ever doing a single exhaust stain. But you still have to make it interesting. And yeah, I see what uh, Tracy means. Just because it isn't showy, it doesn't mean it, it isn't interesting. It's still got to have a lot going right. on. It's just yeah. not as loud, not as in your face as a heavily weathered model. Yeah. And and it, most of what I build, uh, everything that I build comes from photos. I see a photo that's cool as shit. You know, I'm, I'm not unique in that way at all. I see a photo that's cool as shit and I'm like, oh, I have to build that. I have to build that scene. I have to replicate what I'm seeing in that photo because that photo is giving me real information that I can try to translate onto my model, like real weathering, real real grime, real uh, fading. Like it's all, if you, if you get lucky and find the right photo or set of photos, all that information's there. And it's really fun to try to replicate that and push your skill set. But this one is, it's different because it just, it doesn't go that far. Like it's still, it's a little bit more restrained and there's 
not quite the obvious information, you know, so you have to like, you have to really get in there and, and try to make area, try to make the whole thing interesting. And that's a pretty fun challenge for me. It's not really a matter of like paint the camouflage and do your pen wash and then throw some light dust pigments on it. And like, I'm done. Um, that's, there's, there's no challenge in that. You know, there's no, that's, that's building a model and, and kind of moving on to the next one. But I don't feel like for me that I learn anything or get any like joy out of, or any progress from yeah, doing there's something. There's no growth like there, is there? No. Do you guys find yourself looking at real shit and thinking, if this were a kit, how would I do this? How would I achieve this weather? <laughs> Typing a scratch yeah. builder. Everything I look at, I think, how would I make that? <laughs> Every fucking thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what Tracy's talking about with his tank just makes me think about uh, you guys might have seen on my Facebook page uh, last night. I posted some tractor porn. Um, this, you know, this thing is just sitting right up here by my house and, and it's brand new. Like it's, you can smell the showroom on this thing, uh, which is unusual for a piece of farm equipment. And I was just studying it and it only has a little bit of dirt collected on it. Like this is the first thing, first time this thing's been out of the barn. And it only has a little bit of dirt collected on it here and there. There's only a little bit of hydraulic fluid. There's only, there's, you know, no rust, no faded paint, nothing. The thing is still pretty shiny. And I found myself sitting there thinking, you know, how would I pull this off? And I think this speaks to the challenge that Tracy's talking about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know driving down the interstate and there's a, a semi next to me, you know, obviously I'm trying to stay in my lane and be a safe driver, but I'm also looking at like, <laughs> oh, look at that, that, that area painted with high gloss. Look at how the dirt is, is behaving on that versus this, you know, matte aluminum or, or painted surface or a surface that gets a lot more traffic. I mean, it's your visual memory. I think as modelers, your visual memory is pretty huge. Um, and you're constantly subliminally seeing things like that and, and just trying to think like, okay, I need to try to replicate that. Or if you're driving down the interstate with, you know, a screaming family in the back, it, it can be a nice diversion to think, okay, how would I? Like, how would I actually, if I were sitting down, you know, and there's there's a million ways to, to, to skin a cat, you know. Um, my, my painting professor, another good story about him was that he went to visit one of his, his heroes and, and they went out um, doing some landscape painting and then they came home and the sun was setting and they were having a glass of wine. And this, uh, this guy, he holds up the glass of wine to the sun and says, okay, how would you mix that color? And he listened to all three of those guys say, okay, well, I would do this, this, and this. And they were all basically right. I mean, yeah, that's, that's pretty close. So there's, there's more than one way to do things. Um, but you're, there's a lot of mental exercises that you can provide for yourself when you're not sitting at the bench. If And I, I think that's pretty pretty fun for me anyway. I'll tell you what this is making me think about is uh, when people say models are over-weathered and they say, oh, I like to do my models clean. Clean vehicles never look like a model that's just been painted in the basic colors and then left. That's no more realistic than a, in air quotes, over-weathered model. Yeah, and then that's always followed up with the uh, less is more comment. <laughs> <laughs> it just uh, it, that's that's one of those trigger things for me because I'm like, no, no, less is just less. It's just you know, 
when you say less is more, what you're really stating is a preference, and that's your preference. That's not necessarily anybody else's preference. Right then, Will, what have you been up to? Ah, well, um, this week, honestly, I feel like I've just been trying to get everything moving in the same direction. I'm feeling a little gross this morning. I uh, have seemed to have some kind of science experiment growing in the back of my throat. I feel like as far as modeling goes, that my answer is kind of boring because it's the same as it was two weeks ago. I am still uh, working on the Edwagawa 132nd uh, P40, but I am into my favorite part, which is oil paint rendering. Um, but I, I had some requests to do that on video and, and, and try and, you know, create some, uh, some, some stuff. Cause you know, there's a lot of stuff out there for guys doing armor and doing oils on armor. In fact, Mike Rinaldi has popped back up, uh, to the surface, which is a great thing for everybody. And he's been doing a live stream on the Rinaldi studio press YouTube channel. If any of you guys out there don't know about that yet, it's a great thing to go check out. He's been dropping like two or three uh, times a week for the last couple of weeks and spending two to three hours. Um, and and it's, been, it's really good. I've tuned in a couple of times and it's been really good. But anyway, uh, there's not a lot of that out there for aircraft guys. It's you know, particular to aircraft. And I think that the mechanics of of OPR are largely the same, no matter what you're doing. But, you know, there's stuff that's more specific to aircraft, you know, things like a building an exhaust stain. Uh, so I've been trying to capture it on video and I, I feel like it's been kind of a shit show, honestly. Um, I, I'm, I'm like on hour five, <laughs> episode five, episode five, as you would expect. And when I look at what I've accomplished, I'm like, this, you know, I have like some streaking here and an exhaust stain there and a few speckles over here. And uh, I just, you know, I don't know. It's, it's hard, but, but I'm trying to really make it as instructional as possible and, and give the, not only the how and the what and the why of the mechanics part of it, because oils are subtle. I mean, you you guys know this, Tracy. I'm sure you can relate to this. You, you... I thought you were using inks on this. Well, I I am using both. Right. So I I have I have been you know fiddling with inks over the last year, and I have found a lot of magic there. I love them. Um, they 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 seem to do you know they seem to kind of live for me in a place that's sort of in between, where they'll do some things that are really kind of like oils. They will let you do some things that oils will not let you do. And then there's some stuff that's just, you know, that's purely crossover. You could do it pretty much the same either way. But obviously, you don't have any drying time with, with the acrylic inks. I mean, it's there instantly. But there's, you know, oils still have, I mean, I'm not kicking oils to the curb. Not not at all. I mean, they, they still have their own magic. But oils are super sensitive, in, in my experience, to the tool you pick up, you know, what kind of brush it is, exactly how much, you know, mineral spirits you use, or, or if you use lighter fluid or naphtha, whatever, you know, whatever your choices, what do you use with your oils, Tracy? Yeah, I use a rule of center, but the way I use oils, I, the brush is almost completely dry. I, you know, when I start 
my session for the day, I'll dip it in there and and let the you know the the bristles pull in that moisture, and then I pretty much completely dry it off. And uh, unless I'm mm -hmm. cleaning the brush at the end, I, I I don't ever touch the mineral spirits again. I mean, I'm applying the oil very precisely, very uh, small amounts, as dry as possible. It's you know I've I have discovered one thing with oils that is kind of fun is because of the way my uh, schedule is, is spread out. Sometimes you'll put some oil down on some cardboard and, and you can work with it for, you know, a few days, even a week, come back and break the, the skin on the top and, and get back in there and it's still wet. If I'm doing wet work with oils like washes, I, I use a little, um, obviously because I have a restaurant, I, sometimes use things that are in the restaurant. So if you get to go um, salad dressing, the little ramekin, the plastic ramekin that it comes in, I use the lid from one of those and put the oil on there and the oil doesn't mm. dry up. So it, it, skin, it skins a little yeah. bit, but you get a lot more life out of it, which is good for me if I'm... Okay, because it's not leaching the, the linseed oil yeah. out of it the way it does when you put it on cardboard or paper yeah, yeah absolutely that, that's definitely true what about you chris what do you use uh for okay. your thinner when you're working with oils i do everything well mineral spirits yes uh sans odor i'd use it every way from the try way that um tracy uses it to really thin washes everything in between yeah and, and do you find that the sans odor or really any odorless mineral spirits has slightly different properties from just regular old hardware store stinky mineral spirits. Well, it doesn't stink. That's a good one. Ha! Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> to be honest, though. Yeah, that, there's that. There's that. I want to move away from mineral spirits because sometimes with oils, it makes the pigments clump. And when it dries out, you get this little, particularly with a black, you get a dotty effect where it's, um, it's made it all clump. Mm -hmm. And it's not a nice, smooth, graded. So I need to try something else. Maybe I need terpenoid or something. Uh, uh, I find that I find that well, terpenoid. I'm glad you said that. Terpenoid's 100 percent mineral spirits. That's that's just Weber's brand name. Well, you for just can't get their, terps now. Uh, odorless mineral spirits. You can't get normal turpentine here. I I find that 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 there's real subtle differences. Like I have Windsor Newton Sands odor, and it's great stuff. Um, and, and then I've also used the hardware store variety of odorless mineral spirits and aside from the obvious of not stinking i find the odorless stuff is not quite as hot and sometimes it's not quite hot enough but but the way that they flow you know like mineral spirits is great because it's just a petroleum product it's not i mean it's not a whole lot different from diesel and so the way that it wicks and flows on a painted surface is you know a lot like diesel or ave gas or whatever is going to do naturally and that's one of the reasons i love using it because you can kind of let nature take its course also the surface uh, tension is a fraction of, of water or anything water-based yeah but but there's just these there's real subtle differences in the way that that the material behaves and and so between the reducer the the oil itself like i find differences between like the student grade winton stuff and the artist grade Windsor and Newton. And then you've got their Alkid stuff, which is the fast drying oils. That's also then again, different from that. Um, they all behave, they all behave differently. Uh, you know, it's definitely a thing with oils where certain colors dry faster mm -hmm. than other colors. Um, and so oils are just super, 
super sensitive to the tools and the and the materials and the technique. Um, and so like, I'm, I'm like you, Chris, I use oils all the way from straight out of the tube to barely any, you know, a pool of mineral spirits. And it just kind of depends on what I'm doing, but that's what I think is so much fun about oils is that you've got that tremendous range right there at your fingertips. You can tune it exactly for whatever it is you're trying to do on the fly. I want to jump in. Like I, maybe I didn't clarify enough. I use, I use oil specifically in the way that I mentioned, but I also use them as washes, everything. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't want to make it seem like I only use them in one way. Uh, I think the last two models that I've built, I've used them exclusively for all of my weathering. Um, I haven't even touched pigments at all. I've been able to get all the effects that I want with them. And well, I, w- I wanted to touch on the fact that you um, you just you sort of apologizing for how long the video is and how you feel like you don't making any you're not making any progress. That's you're showing the reality of working with oils. It they're subtle. Mm-hmm. They the result that they give you is a result from putting in time and effort. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're Absolutely. showing people the reality of working with oil, so nothing to apologize for. Actually, you're doing them a favor. Well, um, because too many people <laughs> make it look really fast, and then people try it, and they're like, "What am I doing wrong?" Yeah, nothing. Right. Just been that's a very that's a very yeah, that's a very important point. And and what I'm also trying to layer on top of the mechanics part of working with the oils is the the, the thought process. Like, here's how I'm going to build this exhaust stain because it's got this tetraethyl lead ash and I want it to have this sort of multi-tonal effect. Or, you know, this is the pattern where dudes are walking all over the wing and I want to try and, and tell that story. And so I'm also, with this with this little video series, showing them all the reference photos that I'm using um, to, to try. and Because I think reference photos are a huge part of, of any kind of weathering work. And it's not so much that you're necessarily trying to duplicate the exact thing that's in the photo, but to just make a a, a a facsimile of that, something that's analogous or that's similar. You know, okay, on this, I mean, it doesn't even necessarily have to be on the same kind of vehicle. You know, like obviously if you're doing science fiction stuff, yeah, well, not a lot of reference <laughs> photos. Yeah, but if you want your science fiction stuff to be plausible, adding realistic weathering you've seen on other things is how to do it, basically. hundred percent. I mean, I don't think that just because it's the 25th century that dudes tracking dirt onto the top of their machining Krieger, you know, Falca or whatever is any different from dudes tracking dirt onto the wing of a, of a, of a P40 uh, dirt's dirt, you know, boots are boots. Uh, and so I, 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 you know, I, I would encourage you know, don't don't get caught up in the idea that a reference photo. Don't be a slave to it. You know, understand its importance. You know, use the power of the reference photo, but don't be a slave to it. You know, just understand that that, that what it's there for is to get you thinking in the right terms, and, and and that's what I'm I'm trying to communicate as much of that as I can. And and the other thing that's that's a, a real hassle for me uh, that that just makes me feel like my style is cramped is. I, it's really typical that I will I will sit down and I'll go, okay, I am going to make some dirt on this thing. And I'll do that. 
And, and as soon as I'm done, I'll look at it and I'll think, man, that's cool. That was fun. <laughs> I, that's great. I feel good about that. <laughs> and then I will post it on SMCG because that's my QC mechanism right there. And somebody will say, man, I really buy that. Or I'll come back an hour or a day later and I'll look at it and I'll go, Meh. there's a sort of a little pattern there that doesn't look quite right. And I'll start fucking with it. And so it, it, it might take me like the prop blades on this Warhawk. I did them on video, came back later in the day and was like, yeah, nope. I washed it off, which is another great thing about oils. Mineral spirits, just rub it right off, start over. Uh, and it took me two or three uh, touches before I was happy with those prop blades. So, you know, and you, you can't capture that on video. There's, there's, you know, there's not any way to explain the intuitive part of the process. That's always the problem with books. You can't, it's really hard to write that part of it in the way you're, you're constantly making micro decisions as you work. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. Also, you know, it, when you work on one area and take a step back, the, the work you've done in that one area really affects the rest. You know, if you've, if yeah. you brought a certain area up to a weathering point that you like, and then you look at the whole thing, you're like, well, okay, now there's no balance because, you know, so mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to explain that. Uh, you know, if you're writing an article, if you're writing a book, if you're making a video, it's really hard to explain like how one thing affects the other and you're constantly adjusting everything based on the last thing you did. But uh, mm -hmm. You know, David Parker mentioned something in his interview that I think a lot of us do, but we don't uh, understand why and how it helps us. But I think as modelers, whenever you, you know, you, you turn the light off on the bench and you go and you do, you know, life, every time I walk by my bench, if I'll, I'll look at what I'm doing, I'll turn the light back on and I'll just like turn the model a little bit and look at what I'm doing. And part of it is like me patting myself on the back and just being like, Hey, that looks cool as shit. I'm really happy with that. But the yeah. other part is analyzing what's not working. And again, I learned so much in art school that is translated directly into modeling for me. One of the things that I would do is I, you know, when I get a painting to a point where I don't know what the next thing to do is, which is almost always near the end. I would put it up on the wall and I would have my coffee and eat my breakfast and eat my lunch. And, and I would just sit there and stare at that thing and I would pick it apart and I would find every single thing that needed to be fixed. And I would figure out in my head how to fix it. And I kept doing that day after day until I could not stand looking at that painting anymore without fixing those things. And then I threw it back on the easel and within an hour it was finished. You know, I, I had my game plan in my head. I'd already analyzed it, spotted the problems and sorted out in my head how I was going to fix them. And I think we do that a lot with modeling, too. When you come back to your bench, you know, and you turn on the light, and you look at it. And you're like, oh, that looks good. But look at that. Uh, I got to fix that. You know, you you spot the things you're not happy with and, and you adjust them in your head. So I think that's a lot of, you know, what you're talking about with doing something it, 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 yeah it is for sure and i i think you do that uh, i don't know that that's universal yeah. though and i think that that's a really really important point because you know i think a lot of guys it's like chris said you know you you're you get this idea that you're going to just move through this at the same pace that it appears on a youtube video and those spaces 
where the thing is just sitting there. Like I always say, I like to let the model sit there and talk to me for a few days at a certain point. And people are like, yeah, dude, I want some of your weed, <laughs> but it's, it's a thing. You know, I do, I listen to, to what the thing is saying that it wants from me. And I know that sounds like pretentious and metaphysical and all that bullshit, but I don't know any other way to explain it because you look at the thing directly. You look at the thing with a little bit of side eye. You look at it from a different angle. You, and, and one thing I've learned is if there is something that causes a little hitch in your gaze, like you're 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 looking over the thing, and 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 there's something that makes you you know that makes that little screeching record sound. You know, it's not just smooth music when you're looking across it. There's that thing. Pay attention to that. And if that keeps happening in the same spot, unfuck that shit. You know, don't waste time. Don't debate. Don't, you know, because it, it is. It's, if, it, if it bugs you now, it's going to bug you every time you look at the thing for years down the road. So, you know, listen to your inner voice. Uh, but anyway, that's all my bullshit. Meddings, what the fuck are you doing, man? Uh, well, I need to get back to painting. I'm just scratch building still this this uh, Renault D1 at the moment. And I just spent four hours today building one suspension unit. So. I'm about ready to throw it out the window. <laughs> now is that is that now is that how many times have you built that? Because you had to build like all 500 wheels, like what eight times? Uh, or I've something? done the wheels twice, three times technically, actually, because <laughs> I got the rims the wrong side. Uh, dude, I saw that and I was like, oh. that's starting to look like the easy part now, <laughs> because now I've got to get wheels, um, three. <laughs> kind of shock absorber things on each suspension unit two swing arms plus some covers all of that i've got to get it level on six suspension units and it might be one of those where you make a base that's uneven and keep wiggling it till it fits or <laughs> 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 just put it in long grass so no one can see that shit but it's just that's that's the scratch builder's well, version of battle when they damage. go on when they're judging at shows and they go all oh, the wheels aren't touching the ground yes yeah, fucking you think that's hard when it's a kit imagine when it isn't a kit it's a bastard oh. it really is yeah but you know what it's like anything else if i get it right it'll be fucking awesome so it's worth doing well the first one looks great i, look, I mean yeah. you can tell how complicated it is and you're just like whoa that is impressive and you're like, oh, well, the other thing of that, it is. probably half that time is working it out. And I've done that now. So the next five should be a couple hours each. Well, that whole little bit where you showed the, uh, I guess, the an idler wheel sliding back and yeah, forth. In yeah, the, yeah, that was cool. In the Hootus. I have no, it's tank shit. I don't know what I'm talking about. I just was like, man, that is some engineering right there. You're actually having to scratch build this mechanism that works the way the real thing does. Kind of, 50%. It's like a spring thing behind it that keeps it on tension. And I haven't bothered with that, yeah. but uh, you can't see it. So, you know, well, I kind of have. I've put a rod in there, but it's not a spring. Here's what I wish is that you were doing a, you know, however many part series on how you're building that and how you're doing that scratch well, this work. This is a book, you know. <laughs> this is for a book for. Uh, yeah, I know, I know, I know, and it's going to well, be great. books I... are like videos, but they're on paper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tracy, they work when the power goes out. Ow! Oh! <laughs> yeah, ouch, Winker. ouch. Yeah, those, yeah, yeah, those, you guys, you guys in listener land don't know. We were in the middle of an interview yesterday, uh, you know, which uh, is, I, mean, with, I yeah. think it's okay to, yeah, yeah, it was with Robert with uh, Robert Crombecker, who is the honcho for SMC Scale Model Challenge. 
that's going to be a really good episode. I think uh, it was a really compelling conversation, but <laughs> Tracy's power went off in the middle of it and we lost him. So yeah, that was, uh, yeah. Yeah. Bad yeah. Tracy. yeah, you should, you should feel bad for me because it really, really irritated me. But dude, my power goes off all the time. I don't care if my power goes off, just not in the middle of the interview. I live in socialist hell, Britain, the last never goes off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, universal healthcare power never goes off. Actually, the the power is privatized, but it, the 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 network isn't the grid isn't. I'm lucky. I can call up the Farmers Electric Cooperative and talk to the general manager, and I'm like, hey, you know what's up, Todd? How, what, you know why why is my power shut off? Because we don't like you. <laughs> he's like he's like yeah, dude. He's like yeah, dude. You need to pay your bill. Pay your pay your bill a little faster next time. Yeah, he's covering the mouthpiece. He's you like know, that. It's, it's that will wanker again. Irritated <laughs> because his power's up. I feel I, I feel bad because they want you to call and tell them when your power goes out. And I'm like, oh, here we go again. They're gonna be like, oh, it's that Patterson guy again. We know your power's out, dude. Yeah, just text them next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're not they're not quite up to speed on the texting yet, but. Anyway, I, I so Chris, I mean, you've been building Madman. I mean, and you're being very low key about it. Well, I mean, is that it's really not something you could describe that well on on a podcast? I guess, but um, I've also picked up a couple of sci-fi kits. I got the uh, what's it called, the F thirty one Siegfried from um, Macross. I'm not remotely interested in the show at all, but it's a really cool, futuristic looking jet fighter. And I thought it'd be good fun to do a neat. good, you know, do a scheme on. I was thinking maybe the 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 two tone blue Japanese scheme they put on their Phantoms would look really cool on it. Oh yeah! And I got the um, Harpy from Crusher Joe, and uh, I'm probably going to do that with a little bit of inspiration from sci-fi painting Supremo Chris Voss. Yeah, that that's a cool looking. Very vehicle. cool. Yeah. They, they look neat. Yeah. So they, I mean, they're they they're fun. painting projects. I'll throw them together and just have you know the painting will be what they're about, and that'll give me a little break then. I kind of think it's like having a hamburger once a month and spending every other day cooking a full meal. If you see what I mean, sometimes you just want something quick and dirty. Absolutely. So there were a couple of comments on your posts about, don't you wish you had a 3d printer right now? And (laughs) so talk about, so talk about that because I I think, you know, it's, it's like the thing and, and uh, you know, I love that shit, but, you, you you gave some very compelling reasons for why you're not going down that I road. I just like making things with my hands. It's like a Zen thing to sit there, use my hands, and to make something out of it and to work it out. I can draw stuff. I draw PE. And actually, to tell the truth, a couple of bits on this, like the the part, some of the parts for the wheels, the rings for the wheels, were drawn on um, cut with a silhouette cutter. Just because I'm not, no fucking way, I'm going to punch out fifty four rings, <laughs> and I've got um, I've got one of those display or whatever you say it, circle cutters, and I've got the thing to line up so you can cut concentric circles, but you can't dial it in good enough within my tolerance, which is maybe twentieth of a millimeter, something like that. You can't dial it in tight enough to cut exactly the same size ring every time. Yeah, there's going to be some variation across that, and I, I can't be doing with that. So put it on the silhouette and let the silhouette do it. Also, I could just listen to it whir, 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 and I'm not fucking doing it. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> but uh, they, they, for any kind of complex part, I love making it by hand. I don't know why. It's just. So you're, do you have do you have the portrait or yeah, are you using the, the what's the. Yeah, portrait 2, I think it is. Okay. And how thick can you cut a styrene sheet on that? Uh, probably, I think it's 
0.2 millimeter, eighth thou, I think it is, something like that. Yep, that is. That's eight thou. And are you, you so do you stick it down to the sticky back sheet? Yeah, or do you, you just, just I've got roll it in there straight. I've got the standard hold sheet and I've got the light hold, which I, I only use the light hold for masking because otherwise your masking sheet stick to it and okay. fuck it up when you try and pull them off. Um so I used a standard And hold. are you using the same the are you using the same blade? No, I bought a premium blade, which which is not an adjustable one, okay. but it is sharper and it's uh, it lasts longer, so I use that one. So those those blades come in different uh, angles, and I bought a little packet that's got like a sixty and a forty-five. And is yours the? Is it different? Is it? Do you need something different for cutting styrene? I don't think it. I don't, I'm not even sure it. I know what it is. It's got a ugly blue metallic cap on the top. If that helps, I don't think it matters. The, the getting the settings right. I think it's probably about forty-five, something like that. Looking at it, the main thing is getting the settings right. It took me a long time to dial them in, but I set the blade to about nine because you can adjust it manually the depth. And then on the um, the actual software, I it's force nineteen, speed two. Speed's really important because if you turn it up, I mean you'll you'll probably know this world with you having one. If you turn it up too high, mm-hmm. you won't get square corners, you won't get round circles because it just cuts too quickly and rounds things off, and also tears right. plastic up because plastic. Uh, the, the styrene sheet I've got, I'm not sure who makes it. It's not Slater's, it's not um, Evergreen, because Evergreen's really expensive over here. It wants to tear like paper in that it wants to tear one way more than it wants to tear the other way. If you try and tear paper, it will <laughs> tear better one way than it will the other. So if it's going too fast, it will nick the plastic and tear it, and you, you don't want that. So Force 19, Speed 2, oh. and 5 passes. So it cuts every cut 5 5 times. passes, yeah. yeah. That's the big difference right there from just cutting masks. Yeah, yeah masks, maybe two. That's that's good shit, though. I, I hope you'll post some of those technical specifics, obviously. I hope you post them in SMCG because that's where I love to see all that knowledge collect. But I think there's dudes that don't realize how much you can do with one of these cutters. You know, they're just cutting masks. I didn't think you could cut cut styrene sheet on the portrait. I thought you had to have the more expensive uh, one. It took make. a lot of effort, but it, it will work. But the, the problem is it'll only cut 0.2. But then again, when you're scratch building, you're better off laminating up several sheets of, of 0.2 mil than you are using one sheet of 0.5 because when it's laminated, it doesn't warp. And the other thing is I never use styrene cement scratch building. I always use CA for everything because otherwise it gets too hot. See that? The, okay, that's that's that surprises me. But you just answered the question because I was, to me, I would just figured that the intuitive thing would be to use extra thin. No, it's um, particularly the the ABS that they make white styrene sheet out of is a lot softer than uh, kit styrene, so it it melts much easier. Mm. Yeah, I've noticed. So so you know I have to be I have to be materials dork mm. right now because you said the ABS that they make styrene sheet out of. Yeah. That's two totally different materials. This ABS is acrobutyl. It's acrobutyl styrene. It's in the family. I mean, everything that's got styrene in it is is sort of in the, it's like a distant cousin, but very different properties from polystyrene. Yeah, the kit, yeah totally different. And so that makes me styrene, yeah. Which makes it react much faster to, to um, polycement. But that's an but that's an interesting point because I mean I'm I, I, the stuff that you're using may in fact be ABS sheet, mm. whereas like evergreen is definitely styrene, def- polystyrene. Yeah, evergreen's not as soft as but the it, stuff. But it, 
but either way, really, because I find either way it's um, uh, it's just good practice to use CA because it never warps. It also won't melt your details whenever you get down to smaller yeah. details. That's yeah, gotcha. True. Are you using uh, any of these uh, black rubberized CA? <laughs> I have done, uh, and they're pretty good. But because it's for a book, um, I'm only using clear stuff because it, frankly, just looks ugly on the photos. You know, it looks nicer if mm. it's just all white. So. <laughs> and actually, I made a rod for my own back because usually I'd use bits of metal and all kinds of random stuff, scratch building stuff. But just because I want the finished model to be only metal with maybe a little bit of brass on it, brass rod, um, then it's I'm just using styrene and brass rod, basically, and a little bit of lead wire, just so it looks nice. I think I think what everybody wants to know is when is this book going to drop? Don't know, because it's going to sound like it's going to finish be... the fucker, which is taking forever. <laughs> <laughs> I picked this model. I thought, oh, it's a nice. It's, it's just a box. This tank, and it's like, okay, well, it's got a, a cast turret, which has got more curves than you know a, a room full of sexy models, and um, the suspension is fiendishly complicated. And now I just wish I'd done a tiger because tigers are fucking box with wheels. <laughs> Incoming hate. Yeah, nobody's going to scratch build a tiger. <laughs> There's four thousand kits on the market. Well, this resin kits are this, and everyone's yes. like, why are you scratch building one? And it's like. Because I fucking want to. What's the problem? Well, the resin you're going to have to fix a lot on the resin kit of it anyway. Yeah, it's it's more trouble fixing that than it is. Uh, I think so. Too. Like these suspension units, that's a solid block behind. Because there's skirts in front of it on the kits, that's just a solid block. Yeah, they don't bother with it's it. Like, they cover it up. Yeah, yeah. Well, no one wants to build it really. Said this idiot. <laughs> well, people want to see it built, like this idiot. Yeah, maybe, maybe. It's French, though, isn't it? It's not sexy. Yeah, I you know what? Uh, we see a lot more French armor kits right now than we've seen in the last 30 years. It's a good subject for a book because there's so much weird. There's cast stuff on it. There's riveted stuff on it. It's a good way of taking one little section. Um, it, the whole build won't be detailed in the book. It's like, um, oh, this is how I like to do my books anyway. It's like a, a skeleton that you can hang the, the, the things on. So... That will be the theme of the book, is this build. But the actual articles in it will be about how to make a wheel, how to do rivets, how to do... It will be about the individual things rather than, like, and then I did this, and then I did this, and then I did this. So it's Breaking only, it down by components? Yeah, to, to show people the universal things that they can apply to scratch building anything, basically, from making a handrail to, uh, you know, making a tank. But you're also addressing the specifics of how to make something... It's cast, how to make something that needs yeah. to be perfectly circular. Yeah. You know, those are challenges that... There's all kinds of techniques in it, like vac forming and uh, the silhouette cutter and, you know, all of that will be in there, all the different tools. The only thing that's not in there is 3D. Because <laughs> that's just boring. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, you sound kind of like you're gatekeeping right now. And Ooh, I know segue. we're going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, seg segue. Look at that smooth as silk. Yeah, because uh, the the gatekeeping thing has, uh, you know, we started sort of talking about that in our last episode with, with Dukes, and that's turned into a little bit of a conversation. And uh, Meddings, you know, you've been stirring up trouble oh, God, over I there. God, I love with, stirring up shit. I think you made it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's fun to watch somebody else do it besides me. Um, you uh, you dropped a meme on the SCU page there uh, to the effect of, uh, you know, this fastest way to kill a hobby is is be a dick to the yep. noobs. And, uh, and and there's so much truth in that. 
but there's lots of different ways to uh, be a dick to the noobs it, or, you know, for us to just be dicks to each other and the noobs see that and think, oh, well, you know, I can't do that. So I think this is a really good conversation for us to continue with. Um, and uh, it, it's going to lead us to uh, a, this is a momentous occasion, dudes. This is going to go, today's going to go down in SCU podcast history as the first episode where we have hate mail. <laughs> Our favorite uh, kind of mail. <laughs> <laughs> It's 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 pretty good one. Should, I mean, should, should should we go ahead and get into it, or do you want to talk a little bit about the gatekeeping thing? Well, first? all I would say before we get started is something else that's been on my mind about it this week is that uh, the Plastic Posse podcast um, did an interview with Pete Colclough, and he's a young guy right. modeling, and he's good. At, good yeah, interview. he spoke really yeah. eloquently about gatekeeping and the problems of younger modelers and getting into the hobby and. That's really made me sort of alive to it this week, and I've been looking for it. And boy, have I found it! It's everywhere. You don't have to look no, hard, no, unfortunately. And it's something that really burns me, particularly about uh, when you go to shows over here. You see it writ large, really. Uh, you know the big UK shows, and I'm sure you do in the US yeah, shows same as well. Over here. So, what do we mean by gatekeeping? Well, I mean, I, to me, it's just you know when dudes act all precious or superior because they think that the way that they're doing it is the right way or the or best the way, way or the only way. And they're just kind of shitting on anybody who, who sees it differently. They're basically establishing um, arbitrary rules for the hobby. That if you don't follow arbitrary. them, you're not a modeler. And that's bullshit because no one made them king of modeling. 100%. It's, you know, it's just kind of this superciliousness and, it, it honestly, it's just, it's, it's part of it is just dudes being dudes. I mean, some of it is just, you know, it's how we are. It's, I think it, to a certain extent, we've evolved this way. We like to debate shit. I think at its core, that's a lot of how things change and, and improve, but it has the dark side. And, and I think this is what we're talking about is, uh, and I, and I think that, I mean, I see commentary from, from younger modelers or from newer modelers, not necessarily younger that uh, reflects the fact that they get a little turned off by some of this gatekeeping. It's, I mean, at a certain point they have to decide for themselves if they're going to work through that, but you know, still it's, 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 uh, I'm with you, Chris. It rubs me wrong too. The sense of entitlement really rubs me wrong. The way they demand respect from new mothers coming in. Yeah. Yeah, and that's going to get into uh, our little piece of hate mail for sure. Do we want to um, read it out? Sure, let's do it. I like it because I, I let's think stir that pot. <laughs> I've queued it. I've queued it up here on my on my phone. So this is this is good. Um, this is from a fellow. Uh, we'll call him Chad. Uh, you know, we don't we don't need to use anybody's name. We're not trying to. We're not trying to get the mob out there with the pitchforks. Uh, and, and look, everybody's got their opinion. I mean, we can completely disagree with each other, but at the end of the day, you know, everybody's entitled to their to their point of view. So here's what here's what Chad says. I thought I liked the direction you guys were heading. <laughs> that's that's a great opener right there. Like you know immediately, oh shit, what's what's coming next? Here, so here we go. But instead, you decide to alienate an entire group of modelers, the ones who have the knowledge to perpetuate what little is left of this hobby. 
All you've you guys are taking notes right now because I hope because there's so much here that we're we gonna need have to unpack this line by line. Right. Yeah, we're gonna have to unpack it line by line. Uh, so all you've done is create a hostile environment for guys who aren't good enough to win a stupid fucking trophy. <laughs> Harsh. Uh, from editor at insert magazine title and now to he's got some experience insert the name of hobby. should we just leave it at that yeah. this guy's kind of an yeah this guy is apparently an insider he's written some books i mean he, yeah he's his his depth of experience is undeniable uh he's got a paint company anyway i've spent my entire career helping those open quote less experienced close quote modelers and now I'm being judged by some asshole who thinks he's entitled to lecture me on respect. Bullshit. Well, before we go any further, <laughs> someone made a comment on that meme I posted saying that respect is to be earned and it isn't automatically given. And that's what seems to have triggered this guy. Yeah. Yes, and I completely agreed with the comment that it is to be earned. I mean... Look, I I firmly believe that humility is one of the core values of great craftsmen, uh, whether it's in model making, uh, motorcycle mechanics, photography, all of the, the different things that I've been involved with, that, you know, over over my lifetime that involves, you know, making shit or working on shit or whatever. I find that the guys who are really good at it don't spend a lot of time demanding anybody's respect. They let the work speak for itself. For me, the last line of that email really defines gatekeeping, that he's deciding who deserves yeah. to get the information. And that sounds like, I mean, that is he's keeping the gate. He's deciding who's allowed into the hobby and who's allowed to know what the hobby's about, according to his definition of what the hobby's about. Yeah, I mean, I, th I thought it was textbook. I don't recall him even being let into the cabal. No, I mean, you know, <laughs> surely we'd be aware of his presence. <laughs> we would have been notified. Yeah, I mean, I, this this idea that there's supposed to be some sort of ring kissing or some sort of acknowledgement is ridiculous, especially in the context of, of posting your work on the interwebs. Nobody really has any idea. You know, what your level of skill is, how you operate, what you're capable of. And it's absurd to think that based on that, somebody is supposed to be, you know, bowing and scraping to your, uh, uh, to, you know, to, to your alleged levels of experience. Um, and I, I just find these appeals to authority. Um, I mean, if I appeal to your guys' authority, I know that, you know, I know what you guys are capable of. But if I'm trying to appeal to my own authority, it just comes off as entitled. Yeah, I mean, I'm a prick in a lot of ways, but not like that. I'm sure Tracy agrees. I'm aware I have lots of limitations. You know, I, don't, I might be good in some areas, but in others, I'm not. And you, you're always aware of that. That means you're not an authority. You're just another guy sharing information. Yeah, and you, you don't, when you say shit like that, you don't take into consideration how much work somebody has put in on their own. And yeah. they're, they're not asking you for the keys to the kingdom. This is a hobby that you participate in largely by yourself. You're not sitting around with a group of people sharing ideas uh, minute by minute, second by second as you're working. You teach yourself a lot of this. And there does come a point where you look at something, you're like, okay, how do you do that? Like, I can't work that out. And having somebody explain something like that to you, is, it, it helps keep your momentum going. It helps keep the growth going. It helps get you the next step. Like, you don't. 
nobody grovels and, and begs for somebody to, to show them this. Like, it's just, you should just be kind to people, you know? Be willing to share like you were. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't Absolutely. Know. Absolutely. We're all. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We all learn from, we, we spent some time teaching ourselves things, but we learned a lot from a lot of people who are better than us. Yep. You learn a lot by listening to other people's conversations. That's what these guys forget. You know, in the case of the internet, reading other people's comments. You might not take part in the conversation, but for everyone that replies to your comment, there's 20 guys or whatever that are reading it. And if you come off... 100%. you come off like people should get on their knees before you because, you know, you've, you've been in this business for 30 years, then all that makes them think is, well, look, old guys are really... That's awesome. Yeah. It's a it's a really important point. And that's like like for me, like, you know, when some when some guy says you must in all capital letters gloss before decals mm-hmm. to prevent silvering, I'm very quick to say, yeah, nope, wrong. I th- I'm not addressing the guy who made the original comment. I don't really give a shit what he does. I know I'm probably not gonna change his mind. I don't care about that. But what I do care about is those 20 guys that you mentioned who may be reading that and trying to learn, and they're not necessarily saying anything. And I think that if if we have the experience to share, that we sort of have an obligation to do that. That's that's like the opposite of gatekeeping is voluntarily being willing to pass that on. We should be guide, not gatekeepers. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Around, yeah. And, you know, Tracy, you, you, you like, like a great example of that, uh, yesterday or the day before, whatever it was, um, this fella, RK, uh, yeah, ARK. Yeah. He posted, uh, his tank in, uh, in uh, SMCG and he, you know, I, I really just loved his, his post because he was very analytical of his own work. You know, he, 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 I think his main issue was he felt like that the thing, um, in fact, he referenced all three of us and he referenced mm-hmm. the podcast. So that, of course, made me feel good. But, but he talked about that he felt like that the, that the colors were muddy, didn't have enough contrast. And, and Tracy, you, you got in there and gave him a really wonderful explanation of what he might do. I was, you know, standing off to the side cheering well, you on. First of all, I responded because he tagged us by name in the post. Um, mm-hmm. I normally, you know, I, I don't respond to things like that because, you know, nobody asked my opinion. That, that's kind of the way I go through this hobby. Like nobody asked my opinion. So, um, you know, I'm going to stay out of it. And like, so the opposite of yeah, me, basically, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I do my own thing. And I, <laughs> you know, if somebody asks me, I'm happy to, to share and, and help and give my opinion and my observation. But uh, for the most part, I, I don't want to overstep my bounds. Like, I, who the fuck am I to to be like? Well, here's what I think you should do. Like, I just don't do that. Um, but he specifically tagged us. He, he was pretty eloquent in identifying what his problem was, and he asked for help and how to fix it. And there was some, a lot of good advice given. And it was you know earlier in the morning, and I was drinking my coffee, and I wasn't ready to actually respond. So I told him like. Just give me a little bit and I'll respond. And he got a lot of really good advice. I feel like whenever I looked at his model, what was happening and the way I described it to him was that his his free color uh, German 
camo scheme, Dunkel Gelb and, and Red Brown and, and Green, they were all pretty colorful. Um, so I use the analogy of that he had too many leading actors and not enough supporting actors. Everybody was fighting That's for right. the spotlight. And in a camouflage scheme like that, I think the Dunkel Gelb is the one that needs to be the supporting actor. It needs to be the duller, less interesting color so that the red, brown, and the green can then step forward and, and you know, be your lead actors, so to speak. I'm trying to say is one of the things, you know, he, he got a lot of good advice, but then he, he said, well, you know, this is all great stuff. I'm really appreciative of the replies. I'll Maybe I'll just try to remember that on my next build. And I was like, oh, but you've got such yeah. a great opportunity right now. Like, don't, you're, don't wait. You're all of these comments that people have given you, all this advice, you're not, you're not going to remember it the next time you sit down and paint. You're probably not. That's just. Well, you remember maybe a little bit of it or something. Just right. One thing and, and, and what he had in front of him was a, a very fixable problem, a very fixable problem, very mm -hmm. easy to, to fix. And I, so I took the time and explained that I thought he needed to, to find a, and I use the colors that I have on my bench because that's my point of my, my frame of reference. I, I have a, uh, what I call like a, a, like a, a light dust color and a, and a buff color. And I find that if you mix those two together and uh, what I kind of reference for him, I, I took his photo and I, I drew some circles every little place. And I thought the, this is where I would drop this color just right here up against your red brown up against your green where things get a little muddy and fuzzy put it there and work it back into that dunkle gel pull it away from where you where you drop it up against your your green or your your red brown and pull it back into that dunkle gel not enough to give it like a hard line but you also want to avoid anything looking outlined you want those colors to be right up against each other and it, it desaturates the the dunkle gel it really pulls that down, and then the the red, green, and the brown start to become a little bit more prominent and more pleasing to the eye, and and just a little bit more of what I think he was looking for. But because his his Dunkel Gelb had gotten kind of like a dark mustardy color, um, it still had a good bit of yellow in it, and it, the whole thing was it just gotten a little bit dark. And it wasn't necessarily muddy in, in what you would think of everything being kind of brown, but more muddy in that all the colors were at the same strength and the same saturation. Yeah. You know, like when I was talking about that, um, uh, what's it called? The, the camera the histogram or whatever. Histogram. Mm -hmm. Histogram. Or, or if you think right. of mixing sound, it's all at exactly the same level. Yeah. Yeah. It was all the same intensity and therefore there was no intensity in a way. Yeah. I think it's a really important point. It goes back to what you were saying before about balance. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a concept that, that a lot of guys miss out on. And so like, just think about it in sort of terms of leverage. You've got this box that's got whatever it is, 60% Dunkelgelb and 20% red brown and 20% green. If they're all the same intensity, the simple fact that you've got so much more of the yellow means that the other two sort of get washed out. Is that is that right? Does that uh, make sense? I wouldn't say washed out. Washed out to me implies that lost. Yeah. They get lost. Plus, there's a lot of like there's a, just a lot of visual conflict on that model. Like there's you're not you're not instructing your eye what to look at and what 
you have to tell people's eye what's important. Um, and if you've got mm, three things fighting for attention, it, it just gets really chaotic. And if you can pull one of those colors back, then, you know, then you've got more balance. Um, and I, I did want to point out, like, he actually went out, he bought the paints, he he applied them to the model. Because I, one of the things I said to him was, you can you can put this on the shelf and promise yourself you're going to do something better next time. But if you take it and do the work now, you're going to understand the concept because you're doing it and you're, you're going to learn so much right there. And dude, I was really stoked that this guy went out, bought the paints, did the work and um, it's, it's made a big difference. And I think conceptually having the brush in his hand and applying the paint and doing the work himself he understands that concept a little bit better now. I think um, what really struck me, Tracy, and I don't know uh, whether you'd agree with this, but I thought the way you offered the advice was the antithesis of gatekeeping. You didn't tell him what to do. You gave him options on how he could do it himself and helped him to learn how to explore his materials himself rather than saying, you must do this. That's the right way to do it. That will fix it. All I, that, I said, I, this is what I would do. You led him to learning rather than telling him how to do it. Yeah. You see what I mean? It's a bit yeah. difficult to, to explain, but for me, that's, that's the perfect. Well, you, you gave him concepts instead of a recipe. Confidence, actually. Yeah. You told him he can do yeah. it. And not only has he learned how to balance the colors better, but he's learned a bit more. I'm sure he already knows, you know, I'm sure he's not a complete newbie because the model was quite good. Yeah. already it just needed that extra nudge um he's learned a little bit extra about how to unfuck something about how to fix something rather than just going on to the next one yeah and I, that, mean, I think really I, important thing as well i think that's really important i'm i there's not been I, I can't even think of the amount of models that i've fucked up and repainted that you know that would have been the next Every model i make yeah <laughs> Exactly. Like, I'm, well, you're always fixing something on it, right? Yeah, you absolutely are. And everything is fixable. It's just a matter of do you want to put in the effort and the time to fix it? You know, I mean, sometimes it, it involves just painting over the, the entire model. And I've done that numerous times. Just when I'm not happy and I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay, what's the easiest fix here? And sometimes the easiest fix is just to start the fuck over and just repaint the whole thing, you know, cover up your weathering, cover up everything. Yeah. And what's the worst that could happen? You're already not happy with the model. Yeah. You know? So I, the other thing that I, I kind of want to mention is I, if somebody bothers to ask me for advice, like specifically and says like, hey, you know, what can I do in this situation? I, I try to be specific, as specific as possible because this is, you're not communicating with someone the way we're communicating right now. You're not talking to someone. You're, you're writing words in the hopes that they understand what you're trying to say. So I try to be as specific as possible and I just try to be as nice as possible. You know, like there was nothing wrong with this guy's model. He just, he needed to nudge it a little bit to get it to where he wanted it to be. I thought it was great. I thought the whole interaction was great. Like the entire thread just made me feel kind of like a proud Papa because I felt like it was just a great illustration of the ethos of SMCG, you know, because sometimes we get accused in there of being elitists. Uh, um, I know that's, that's another, that's another one that rubs, that rubs Chris. I got, right so, I got more triggers than a gunshot. 
But the elite, but the elitist thing, you know, that just tells me that, that that it's dudes who are not paying attention because we really do have a very deep talent pool in that group. And but I have never, in the six years we've been running that thing, seen anybody refuse to help someone because you know they didn't show them enough respect. The group's just a microcosm, though, because I see it in other things as well. I remember when I first got back into modeling, someone. Um, came up to me and told me how much they hate magazines because they've got all these really well-made models where they use aftermarket and stuff. And I just thought, why, <laughs> why do you hate good models? And, you know, he called it elitist. And elitist to me often sounds, it's probably unfair, I'm sure we're going to get hate mail for this, brewcuttersunion at gmail.com. But do it. Or brewcuttersunion on Facebook. You can message us there with your hate as well. Right. Come to our come to but, our um, page. Bring it. To me, it always sounds like someone is intimidated by models better than theirs, and they don't like knowing that they exist. They resent the fact other models exist, which maybe are quote unquote better than theirs. And it's not just that's not me saying they're better. There's a sort of feeling of it's like almost like there's some feeling of inadequacy there that they're already seeing. So they're already saying oh, these models are so much more involved and I don't like that. It makes me feel bad about my models. Stop being a pussy. (laughs) (laughs) If you like your models the way you like them, don't get over it and fucking like them. It doesn't mean, you know, just because all models don't look like yours doesn't make you any, shouldn't make you any less happy with your model. If you like that, the model that way, if you like the factory fresh look, then fucking learn to love it and learn to stop being upset by other people's models. Yeah, you, you, that's that gets into another conversation that sprang up in there the other day where a couple of guys mentioned, you know... Oh, sorry. Before we move off that, what I'm going to do, threads disappear really fast on the internet. So I think it's really good if people go on and have a look at the one we were talking about, RK's post. I'm going to link to that in the show notes so that you can just click on it and go straight to Facebook. Read it and yeah, awesome. that's a great idea. Because lots of people get that's a great that. idea, and and and, and read re, read yeah. through it. You know, investigate like like with this. You know, get the whole context, get the flavor of the replies. Um, like with this little bit of hate mail that we got here, I you know I went into sleuth mode. Um, I took a look at Chad's page. I, oh, I read wow. through some of his commentary. <laughs> hey, you know, I want to be fair. I, I did. I'll be honest. I did not really understand what he was on about to start with. I'm like, what? We're alienating? We, no, we're trying to make this a safe space for anybody who wants to learn and grow. And the more I looked at the thing and the more I read some of the stuff and some of the commentary, uh, you know, because there was a little crowd of gatekeepers. You know, there was one. I, I think I sent you guys a good screenshot of one guy in particular um, you know, because he made a meme about, you know, somebody complaining about a kit being bad. And then, of course, there was the usual, and this is one of the most common kinds of gatekeeping that we see. There was this assembler versus yeah, model yeah. modeler bullshit, you know, where if, if you enjoy a kit that's well engineered and fits together properly and doesn't require you to clean flash off of all 500 parts, then you must just be or a simple. complain about a badly engineered kit more precisely. Yeah, whatever it is, well, you're just not in it. You know, we're, we're, aren't we modelers? You know, are, are, isn't that isn't that part of the challenge? Aren't we supposed to embrace that? And and you know, I I, I keep going back to something that Chris Becker, you know, he's an Aussie, uh, 
and, and, and he says this a lot. He's got a good YouTube channel, by the way. There's more than one hobby. And that is 100% true. At a minimum, there's two. There's building and there's painting. And, and you can very clearly see that some dudes enjoy one more than the other. And then there's a whole bunch of smaller sort of niches contained within those two things. And everybody should feel free to enjoy their version of the hobby exactly the way that they want to and not let anybody else dictate that. And, and, I, and I would say that that's the defense against these gatekeeping turds is just don't give a fuck. You know, do your thing. You do you. Recognize what makes you happy and do that thing and do it to whatever degree you are comfortable. So what's funny is is I'm clearly in the minority here when something like that comes up. Like both of you guys are like cracking your knuckles and like, all right, let's get in there. And I'm like, this guy. <laughs> it's time time for uh, a Donnie Brook. So let's go. Come, I feel like me, my response to that is the same response that I have to um a lunatic screaming on the street. You know, I just like, okay, well you're a fucking lunatic. And I keep walking. Like, I'm not going to get in the middle of this shit. Like, what does it gain? What do I gain from this? Like the, the best thing I can do is just walk away from it and assume that that lunatic is a, a fringe, you know, a, a minor portion of, of humanity. So, you know, these fucking lunatics that like get on their keyboards and like, my opinion. I'm just like, <laughs> bye. I'm, I'm not even going to stop and like engage in conversation any more than I would stop and engage in conversation with a lunatic screaming on the street. I keep walking and you guys are like, now listen, lunatic. This brings me on to my, another one of my pet hobby horses. We should start a new thing. Chris's hobby horse of the week. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> criticism. Now we've talked about how to give it. How to take it is also an art. And as far as I'm concerned, there are two ways to take criticism. You either listen to it and act on it, or you ignore it. How the criticism is delivered is immaterial. The, how you react to it is up to you. There's no point going, oh, fucking rivet count is ruining my hobby. No, you're letting them ruin your hobby. So you either listen to them 100%. or you don't. You know, you could do the Tracy response of, oh, it's a lunatic on the street. I'm just going to walk away from them. What I tend to do is listen to it and evaluate it. Try and be objective about it. And the one question I ask is, are they right? If they're right, then I've got the choice of swallowing my pride and acting on it or deciding oh, I can't be asked and ignoring it. But it's always up to you. It's up to you what you do with criticism. And it's up to you whether you let it upset you. And don't let other people dictate to you this is me to dictate to people how they should listen to it. Don't let other people <laughs> dictate to you how to respond to criticism. It's purely up to you. But you're right. And, and this is why I, I go back to that thing where humility is one of the virtues of great craftsmen. Because I think, I mean, even if somebody looks at your work and says, that looks like dog shit, your first response should be, like you said, is he right? I mean, you know, you, you, there's, you have the, you know, you have the, the choice. Nobody but you can decide at that moment how you're going to deal with that, whether or not you're going to take it on board, whether or not you're going to make use of it. I, I mean, it, you know, it, it doesn't matter how much, you know, what I think of, of somebody who's commenting on my work. If they say something that concerns me, the first thing I'm going to do is go look 
and see if there's, you know, if there's merit to that. Uh, And I, and I think that that's critical to anybody who wants to grow. Um, You know, don't get hung up on, on the delivery, especially on the internet, because, you know, the little tiny words on the little tiny screens don't do a good job of, of transmitting intention. Uh, So, you know, don't assume, don't assume malice, just take it at face value. Take it specifically for the information it is. Run with this it. This goes back to gatekeeping again as well. Many In a former lifetime, I worked in recruitment for 10 years. And I came across a lot of people that have been doing their job for 20 years. And a lot of those people weren't people that people wanted to hire. And it wasn't because they were a certain age. It's because they've been doing the same job the same way for 20 years. And essentially, they hadn't grown. They've just been doing the same thing day after day after day for 20 years. And, you know, when someone says to me, I've been modeling for 30 years, you know, the <laughs> lippy shit in me wants to say, what, you haven't got any better. But seriously. <laughs> <laughs> it's a valid response in many cases. So, you know, when they say, oh, I've been, I've been in this hobby for 30 years, it's like, well, it doesn't mean you're good. Every yeah, time I go on the exactly. internet, there's some kid in Russia or China who's a shit ton better than me, and he's been doing it five minutes. Yeah, yeah. This All some, the mm-hmm. models talk Absolutely. bullshit walks. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. I feel like this is getting you know kind of leading us into our interview segment because, um, as I think that listeners are going to hear uh, here in a few minutes, I. <laughs> There's, uh, I, I, you know, one of the things that I went into this interview as with a sort of a preconceived notion was that Al Murray was a famous guy who built models occasionally. And it was within about five or 10 minutes of the interview that I realized that I had to completely, the, 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 the truth was completely the opposite. Al is a serious model maker and he I just found his whole approach so refreshing. And one thing that struck me, and maybe you guys picked up on it too, was that he's kind of disconnected. Like he's not hanging out in SMCG or any other model making forums. He's not He's not doing the internet thing. He's doing his thing. And I, I, I hope that you guys out there in listener land are really paying attention to when he talks about how he gets experimental and what he learns and his just whole attitude about that, because as he was talking about some of those things, I was sitting here thinking, yeah, if if you had rolled that out there in some of these groups, there would have been somebody who would have said, well, I've won lots of awards in my 50 years of model making, and that's just not the way you do it. All right. So with that, then let's jump right into the interview. Chris, lead us into it. This week's guest is Al Murray, stand-up comedian. TV presenter and uh, presenter of the history podcast, We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Al's been on British televisions for a great number of years, touring as the pub landlord. Also uh, on Tracy's favorite show, Taskmaster, where he did silly stuff for money. And uh, as we said, is a big fan of World War II history, presented programs about the drive from Normandy to Germany with the British Army uh, and various documentaries and has written a number of books as well. So without further ado, Let's talk to Al. Tetra Model Works are a leading producer of premium photo etched sets for all kinds of modeling genres. From armor to ships to aircraft and more, they make some of the best PE you can buy. And I know because I use it myself. 
I love it so much I even sell it in my own store. The design is outstanding, sharp and clean detail, well designed folds and easily constructed assemblies. Easy to use, their high quality brass is just the right thickness and strong so it won't break on you. Their sets provide the maximum of detail but never with parts you don't need or can't use. Instructions are clear and very easy to follow. Sold in hobby stores around the world, just look for Tetra Model for the very best in photo etch and accessories. You can find a full list of their distributors at tetramodel.com. That's tetra, T-E-T-R-A, model.com. Welcome to the Sprue Cutters Union, Al Murray. <laughs> Thanks yeah. very much. Thanks for having me. What a pleasure. Welcome aboard. I never knew there was a union. <laughs> We've asked you on today, uh, obviously, mm. because as well as uh, all the other stuff you're involved in, particularly We Have Ways, you're also a modeler. Yes. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your modeling. Oh, well, I mean, I, I'm of the Airfix generation. I, I was born in 1968. So in the 70s, in the UK, we lived in a sort of khaki shadow of the Second World War. And sort of REF blue, really, shadow of the Second World War. And my, I remember my dad, who was a paratrooper for a bit, bringing home some Airfix paratroopers, um, uh, the one that would have been the 132nd ones, and painting them with me and probably buying me the Johnny Johnson Spitfire and Mark nine that Airfix did, where you just, just stick the wings on basically and, the, and then cover the canopy in cement. And I remember making those at my grandmother's house in Bath when I must've been five, six and leaving uh, and being completely into it and then trying to get them home without them in a box, without them breaking. And then I mo did modeling, kind of for quite a long time, I think probably till I was 12 or 13 when I decided I've got, a, I got, a, I got, I've got other things I need to do. And then in the last year and a half, because I was sort of footling around looking at it before lockdown, and then lockdown I thought, right, I'm going to abandon myself fully to this hobby and throw myself into it. And I've really got back, back into it, and I absolutely love it again now. I'm totally into it. That is super, super cool. What kind of modeling? Are you still doing aircraft? No, no, no. So I progressed from aircraft when I was a kid, really, to the Tamiya 135th Armoured Fighting Vehicles, the, the, the Second World War stuff. And, you know, would save my pennies and then buy the, buy the next one that I'd coveted from the, from the you know, the internal sheet. of. I think one of the earliest Tamiya models I made was the, was the, the Flak 88, the, 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 you know, the, uh, the anti-aircraft, anti-tank gun. And that has a, that has a catalogue page of all the stuff they were making at the time. And, um, and I must have, I must have, you know, slavered over those and picked the ones I wanted to make and, and gone from there really. Uh, and really, I was really into it. I love doing it because I, I went, I went to, I went to a boarding school and the thing about modeling is it gave me a chance to do something where I had carved out a space completely for myself with no one else involved, no one in my face, no one in my, in my way or in my transom, you know what I mean? And I, and you, you go in and you focus on the thing and you just do it. Listen to the radio or whatever. Do you have a favorite vehicle, Al? A favorite vehicle? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Is there anything that currently you're uh, you're excited to, to build? 
Well, well, I've kind of uh, uh, when I came back to it last spring, the big idea was that I was going to build all the British tank types, starting with a um, if I could get hold of the Matilda one and go through to the Chieftain uh, uh, Centurion and do the sort of the the, the story of British um, armored development in the Second World War. That was the big idea, and then I got I basically got um, distracted by Sherman tanks, which I am nigh on obsessed with, and I've about five in my stash yet to make of all different types, because now you can get the different types of all different types. And and that, I think, the Sherman for me is the one I just keep being magnetically drawn back to. Sometimes I forget the Sherman's American because you see so many great pictures of British Shermans and so many great books about British Sherman crew and what Yeah, but you, you know what? Who, who ordered it? It was a British procurement in the first place. So there are things about it which come from British um, procurement requirements where the British are saying to the um, people designing it, could you do this, please, actually? And we need you to do that. And also there's French tank design in it because the the, um, the detachable gearbox, the river, river, you know, the bolt plate along the front mm-hmm. is basically straight off French tank design, like the, like the, uh, the Samur, you know, from, from pre-war French armour. And so there's, it, it's, a, it's a, I think you're right to think of it like that because it is a sort of potpourri of, um, or a mix, a, a mix and match of different, tank styles and requirements that the British and the French have already developed. So, yeah, it's a British tank. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I, I didn't know that. I don't know much about tanks, but I definitely did not know that. Yeah. Well, the, the, the interesting thing about the Sherman is it falls into the same procurement period as the Mustang when the British are going, what have you got? What can you make us? And the American arms, you know, companies go, well, you know, we take this off here. And the French tank designer had fled to, to the U.S., He'd gone to the US and the best guy at casting in British industry had gone to the US as well. So why has a cast turret and why you have the detachable transmission at the front is, is it's a confluence of different designs and demands. And then the British going, can we have a hatch that does this and all this sort of stuff? Obviously, they don't put the driver, the British side, but it's got <laughs> that. <laughs> it's got that kind of stuff in it, which I think is really interesting. Very cool. I have a burning question then since since you're a Sherman guy. Let's do yeah. a movie review. Fury, Fury, <laughs> yay or nay? <laughs> oh well, I you know, uh, yay because it looked great, nay because it was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get you can't get more succinct than that, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, it was fantastic to see like an art department go to town on the whole thing and and really make a commitment to it. And it was great to see the Tiger One Three One out and about. But you know, you don't. It, the, the, just the, all the stuff with the the tiger tank parked in the middle of the field where, it, you know, it would have been in a hide with somewhere else to then reverse to and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It just, it, but that kind of thing really um, uh, makes makes my teeth itch. And so to, to, to have a whole film of itchy teeth was too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a yell at the screen movie. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. But the tanks all look beautiful. And the Fury tank is at Bovington at the Tank Museum. And it's a glorious thing. And you can see yeah. where they you can see where they bolted the GoPros on and stuff for the track shots and all that sort of thing, which is really cool. You've been there recently, right, with We Have Ways? Yes, we've been there. I mean, we've actually been there, uh, I think, three times to record stuff there. And we were there very recently, just before they reopened in May. And got in the workshop and saw the saw the stuff they're doing to the to the Churchill there because the they've had problems with the transmission on the Churchill and then the Tiger of course was in pieces you know living up to its reliable 
reliability reputation sort of all spread out across <laughs> the floor and that uh and just re- it's really amazing what they're doing there and how and how they're able to restore the stuff it's incredible really very cool so have you ventured outside of tamia at all well i have yeah i have because i mean i i can't, i started with a i started with a couple of tamia models just kind of out of nostalgia and it was that kind of um that pure feeling of oh i, I know my way around this kit in a weird way although when I was a kid, I used to, you know, I'd make something once. I'd never get to, I wouldn't make a troop of Shermans. It was impossible. I didn't have the pocket money. Whereas the, I mean, the major difference now with the hobby is it's a, it's a blank check hobby now, really. And, and, and as a result, and weirdly a relatively cheap one, because I, I don't know if you can see, I, I play the drums, which is an expensive hobby. And, um, uh, now you call that a hobby, but you do also own a company, right? Well, I own a company that makes them. Yeah, so um, we manufacture stuff in Stockport, and <laughs> uh, and you know we ship them all over the world. But yeah, but, but so that's a really expensive hobby. Having set a company up, let's put it that way. <laughs> so so you know buying buying another ten mil bottle of paint uh, doesn't really pot of paint doesn't really feel quite such a commitment. But th- no, so I've done some. I've done. A couple of dragon kits. I got into that, which are interesting because they're because of their vintage. They, you know, they seem quite old, but are that next level of fiddliness. And then I do have a I have a half finished AFV Club uh, Churchill with the spindle on it, um, and uh, which I'm sure Chris, you have some views on. And then the, and then I've got a half finished AFV uh, um, Ryefield model um, Firefly Sherman Firefly, which is a beautiful model, but the but there's an it's just a million parts and and the the thing the thing i really i really dig is the painting and the finishing and trying to make them look like a, a little, little impressionist work of art rather than necessarily the interior um uh, in fine detail if you know it, I, that's just my my vibe on oh you're speaking our and especially tracy i mean you're speaking our language and now we have a ton of new questions for you we probably didn't even think we had <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I enjoy the building process in a separate way from the finishing process, but the finishing process is where it really comes to life. Yeah, yeah, that's for me. And I and the thing is, is I've I've sort of discovered new ways of doing. And obviously, the the, the sheer range of products now that did not exist in the late seventies, early eighties means you know you've got all these washes and you've got you know the Games Workshop rust products are really amazing. You know, stuff that stuff that never was around. Uh, when I was a kid, I mean, I start. I remember, I remember when I first started modeling. It was all enamel paints. It was all Humbrol enamel paints, and then yeah. the, the Tamiya acrylics. My mother was like, "You could see her thinking, Hallelujah! If he spills, if he spills this, it'll come out of his trousers." You know? <laughs> <laughs> In a way that the enamels never did. So, um, you know, and I didn't. Everything didn't stink of white spirit anymore. But it's the finishing is, I, 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 you know, that I've really, really got into, and I've got. I've got all my old kits since, since I started. And, and what I'm doing, Grace, basically, as a new one come, comes in and I start getting better at it, the old one goes in the bin. There's a sort of one man in, one man out process on my shelves as, as I improve. Um, because the, the just get really getting into the finishing is really exciting. Yeah, it's, it's time consuming, but it produces dividends for sure. I mean, you yeah. can see it in your own work across your own shelf. Yeah, uh, yeah. Totally, Just yeah. Seeing that progression is is really motivating. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's uh, it's really gratifying, and and also, the, the, uh, also, some of it is trial and error, and then eventually you sort of settle on a, actually settle on a technique, and then it really starts to work for you, which is what I'm finding. Um, 
I've, I've, I've taken to um, undercoating everything in, in, a, in the red oxide primer that, that Tamiya do so that they've got an undercoat like an undercoat they would have had. Nice. And that's the, that's the way I'm going at it. Now, rather than pre-shading, because I don't, I don't use an airbrush. It's all, it's all paintbrushes. You're doing everything, and... everything with a brush. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. But, that's well, basically, I'm in my kitchen, right? There isn't, I don't have a dedicated room in the house. I'm in my kitchen. I'm on the kitchen table, you know, with lots of eye roll off the family. And I think if I if I if I introduced an airbrush to that situation, I'd, I'd be much more unpopular, much more really really quickly. So that so the I, I kind of just I've decided to persevere with the brushes, and I'm getting better and better and better at it. And also finding finding I'm really going for the sort of slow process of a wash, leave it, come back, and really really washing the paints in rather than big fat layers and that is turning into something really 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 exciting and especially with the red oxide undercoat because you can have that come and you can have that appear or disappear within the coat and it gives it it gives it this really to me this really sort of metal look um uh, and finished look that that you know that i looking across my shelves is starting to sort of really turn into something so you know and i don't know if it i what i love about this hobby as well is it doesn't look like what anyone else is doing but i don't care you know, uh, it doesn't look like anyone's tutorials, but I just don't care. It looks the way I want it to look. Well, it's so much about the journey. Yeah, absolutely. And the satisfaction of it. Yeah. You mentioned that you're painting by brush. What what are you, what paint are you using? Are you brush painting Tamiya? It's mainly Tamiya. Yeah. Yeah. Acrylics mainly, but I've got some, uh, I've got some MIG ammo, although I don't really get along with them very well. Or what I quite like though, with the MIG ammo is if you introduce a wash of that into a wet Tamir, if you've got the two dunkel gelbs, the two dark yellows, and you mix them together, they sort of fight it out on the on the surface, <laughs> and that makes it look weathered and and stressed and extreme. And to me, to my eye, really, really real. Um, and that's the sort of thing I'm quite interested in, is getting getting the different get and because I'm really into using sea salt as well. Is getting it all to sort of stress out and fight it out on the palette, as it were, and right. using the tank as a palette, and then and then you varnish it. And if you and if you then put an acrylic varnish on that, that then sweats the salt out again, and you can then add another layer, and then and then an enamel varnish. I find changes how those things all react together, and that's the stuff I'm playing with that I'm finding really interesting to play with. This isn't the stuff I never imagined doing when I was a a, a lad. But yeah, mainly Tamir and some Mig ammo, and then the Vallejo stuff. Some of the colours in those those are really really fantastic. Some of the Vallejo paints are really good fun. Uh, materials to play with there's a dark rust a, a panzer aces dark rust which separates and you get the you get the redder rust pulling away from the from the darker rust in the in your palette so you 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 know it's like reacting with itself while you, you while you're manipulating depending on how much you dilute it and that's really cool you know so i'm into the sort of getting the paints to all fight it out uh on the vehicle which I, you know it results in interesting finishes that's awesome. There are dudes hastily scribbling notes out there right now. And, and I always start on the, always do, I always try this out on the bottom of the vehicle because that's all, that's going to get slathered in mud anyway. So right. I always, you know, I get, I kind of get the, get the, get the mixes going on the underside and then take it topside to make sure it works. Once I've figured out how it works. You're a brave, you're a brave man just to be, just to be brush painting with Tamiya at all. Most people will tell you never, ever do that. Oh really? Oh, that's yeah, interesting. It's well, I don't, I don't, yeah, it's notorious. People, some people find with a retarder, and then here I go. I love talking shop. I, I got to shut up yeah. right now, but I, I can't help talking shop. They, Tammy, it makes a retarder that supposedly yeah. makes it behave a lot better. Yeah, most people are like, no, don't do that. 
Really? I just, I mean, I'm just using water and washing things down really dilute. Nice, so. nice. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're building a lot of layers as well, which that yeah. that really gives you a great depth of finish and, and gets that patina going. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, I am, and and that also kind of fits into the the fact that um, <laughs> at one point in lockdown um, uh, last year in in May uh, before you know when we were like fully locked down, I realised I had spent. 12 hours sat at the kitchen table working on a firefly. You are truly and, one of us. And remark, yeah. <laughs> well, but remark, the real reason I realized is remarks were made and, um, uh, <laughs> and, and, and entirely fairly um, remarks were made. So one of the appeals of doing this sort of wash, this thing of doing lots and lots of washes is he literally is go downstairs I'm up in my office up here. Go downstairs, 15 minutes, get these washes on, and then just leave it all day and come back in the evening and do a bit more. And, and, and you know, obviously do the sort of um, different pre-build modules, you know, of the kit, but start to paint it and start to get it ready, get the undercoats on all that sort of stuff. But it is like a, a thing I can do for a quarter of an hour and then go back go back and get on with work. So if I, need a, if I want a break from writing up here, I'll go downstairs, I'll do 10 minutes of it, come back up. Yeah. Can I can I offer a suggestion that I think yeah. might be for you? Please. Um, there's a brand of paint out of Italy called Life Color, right? And their paints dry dead flat. Really? Um, they've got great colors. They've got a rust set that uh, is kind of uh, what a lot of people use for mufflers. But right. Just okay. The way you like building up layers and textures. Yeah. It might be fun for you to to try some of that because then you're dealing with the levels of finish too. It's yeah. you know, to me is have a, a little bit of a sheen and these yeah. guys are going to dry dead flat. Okay. Um, that's cool. I've written that. I've written that down. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think you'll have fun with that. I think it'll be a, a another. And they're, acry- they're acrylics, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cool. Great. Good. Yeah. 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 They're, they're fun paints. Ah, oh, brilliant. Excellent. Fantastic. I think it's uh, interesting that you, you said about how yours doesn't look like anyone else's problem perhaps with internet modeling and forums and groups and facebook and what have you is everyone's models can start to look like each other's as everyone pursues the same techniques and materials yeah and also it's really good to hear that you experiment with materials because on this show that's something we talk about a lot about getting to know your materials and and playing with them more yeah 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 well i think i i think that's the that sort of uh, um what they offer you you know the the, the, i mean fortunately because everything's acrylic now it offers you it offers you the opportunity to try and mix and match and I mean the other thing is I got into those flory washes I tried those I didn't read the instructions and um, uh, uh, properly and and absolutely smothered something uh, in it and and thought well you know this is a bit over the top isn't it but but actually but actually it gave me the it actually gave me the finish I was after in a weird way, like of completely filthy. Because that's the other thing. I don't want anything to look pristine. I want everything to look filthy and like it's had the shit kicked out of it. Because when I know when I was a kid, everything would look like it was in a museum and was pristine. And and I spend my time, if I'm out in the car, looking at, if I see a farm vehicle go by, I have a good look at exactly how dirty it is and how there is filth everywhere on it. The dust gets every, dust in particular, not the mud, the dust. Everything's got this patina of dust everywhere in every nook and cranny. And that, and that, I think, you know, if you, if you're not giving a thing, a general mud wash at the end, 
Uh, certainly armored fighting, fighting vehicles. I mean, airplanes is a different story. But if you're not doing that, you're like, you're not doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sherman's got covered in dust thanks to that matte paint. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there's so much dust in Normandy anyway, or wherever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, everything moves through the environment, you know, and yeah. it kicks up the environment. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it is. I mean, the other the other thing I've the other thing I bought recently is some of those pencils that, um, you know. Oh, AK weathering. Yeah, but then of course I realized if I'd gone to the art shop, I'd have been able to buy a set of pencils anyway, and they didn't need to come in their little weathering box, and they're just they're just. Yeah. <laughs> They're just pencils, right? Yeah. But I found them. I found them really interesting to use. A really, really fascinating thing to use, especially if you've got a texture already out of the paint or some filler or something. And then, like sh shading with them, is really it's like generates really interesting features. And um, I mean, uh, where is it? So I made, I made, I made this at the weekend, and um, which is the little the Sparwagen, you know? Oh the, yeah, yeah. The, uh, For the um, uh, yeah, get the, off or that's right. And at the back there. So the rear panel, there's salt on that, and then varnish and all this sort of thing, and then I've and then I had to gloss varnish to get the decals on, and the the salt something happened with the varnishes is they all reacted with each other, so it put this crinkle in. You shade that with a pencil, and it and it just looks like it looks like a real thing, like a concrete object rather than you know a nicely produced Japanese plastic toy, because yeah, that's what I was <laughs> trying to move away from, you know. <laughs> we are making metal anyway plastic look like metal right yeah 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 exactly yeah it's such a fun journey yeah yeah that i mean that's that's the appeal of it i think and and like i say getting getting better at it and also thinking well i'll paint that i'll i'll, I'll do because I'll, that a, a previous one of these because i'm doing this little competition this kit off for chuff thing that um uh someone's doing on twitter where we, we all have got you, you've got to buy a kit that's under 20 pounds and you've got to finish it and and it's for a heart children's heart unit so there's a bunch of us submitting stuff so i did the pan i did a panzer two to go with this which i painted gray and then put and then put the yellow on top like like they'd hurriedly rushed it from france to north africa and that looks really good because because whether they were any that looked like that it just feels like i've done the journey it's like the imagination of putting the imagination into the kit of the history there were you all right yeah and you've actually replicated the way the thing was finished originally yeah 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 because i don't because that, that that's the when i look at the sort of pre-shading idea i sort of think yeah but but the real real things aren't pre-shaded you know amen <laughs> you just you just enraged half of the <laughs> modeling community right there yeah i mean i i understand i get it i see what it is that i see i see the effect and the effect is really really interesting but but you know they were metal they were metal underneath yeah you know, steel underneath, primed with primed with some sort of probably some sort of red oxide paint, probably, and then and then I mean, I, have you ever seen? There's a, there's a film called um, They Were Not Divided, which is a Second World War, yeah. post Second World War, made in 1946, 47, and it's about a fictional brigade of uh, a fictional um, regiment of guards tank outfit, right? And they're in Sherman's, and there's a mixture of like real footage from the Second World War, and then a load of stuff they obviously filmed with, you know, with all the vehicles lying around and there's a scene just before d-day where the sergeant major comes around and he goes have you finished painting that vehicle yet and it's literally blokes with paint paint brushes painting this sherman tank now obviously that's in a movie uh so maybe it's a movie representation of how they would have done it but my money's on that's how they'd have done it oh they had to have done it that way at least some of the time uh, it would yeah be, it would yeah, be yeah. ridiculous to not to not think so 
Yeah, and you know, soldiers they need things to do. They need to be kept occupied. They're all waiting for this big operation. So you know, get the tanks ship shape, lads. And and I can just see it, blokes with pots of paint. I believe it. And so that that's the other thing I try to make sure is my kids look 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 like you know look like that rather than you know. And pre shading has no, to my mind, has no part in that idea in that conception that way of putting a thing together. It doesn't. It doesn't. For me, it doesn't compute. But I, I can see the results. I can see how beautiful they are. But it also doesn't look to me, doesn't feel like the right order to do things in. You know, the paint on top fades. Not the, there's not darker paint beneath, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's a thing with, air, <laughs> with aircraft modeling even more, where it was really popular for a while. And when I looked at it, I just it just seemed backwards to me. You know, why would yeah. these, why, and, and it's, you know, all over the entire surface. It ends up looking kind of like this checkerboard thing, and and it's just like you said, it's just not really representative of of, of reality. It's you know it's yeah. a style, and if you like that, then that's cool. But yeah, it just doesn't really tell the story. Exactly, it, looked, it looked like a quilt. Quilt, you know. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it just everything was so even and the same, and there was color in between. I don't yeah. know. It just it it was stylistic, but eh, not not realistic in my opinion. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And anyway, I mean, the, one of the things I always wonder is how far away is your 135th model from you? Um, in oh, terms of scale distance. In terms of the, you know, in terms of what you'd actually be able to see in terms of the human eye. You know, how, uh, and obviously I know a big part of this is photographing kits and really up close and, yep. and going, in, going in for that detail. So therefore making them bigger than they are. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 it's a, it's a question. It's a, it, to be honest, it's a question I have no answer to. I just think it's worth one worth raising. You know, how far, how far away? If I've got a tiger tank, one thirty fifth tiger tank in my, in my hands in front of me, like how far away is it? If it's that big, oh, <laughs> do, you are, do you know what I mean? Yeah, you are rubbing on the edges of some serious discussion in the modeling community right now. <laughs> there are. There are that break out in Facebook modeling groups every day on this topic. Well, th- I'm from out of town, you see, or I'm new. I'm new to town, you know. And and because I kind of think, so lucky. because I kind of think, it, you know, I mean, t- t- to the to those listening, I mean, I'm holding my hand, sort of, uh, an, not an arm's length, half an arm's length from my face. That's a tiger tank at the other end of my street. Yeah. In terms of how big it is, perhaps, you know. So how much? Yeah. Clear detail, can I really see on it anyway? But that's not to say just, you know, just paint it yellow, but <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think that's really interesting. That So what does it look like at a glance? Or what does it look like, you know, and then you're talking, and these are ideas around art, around impressionism, around post-impressionism, around figurative art, figurative art and all that sort of thing, which I think are quite interesting to feed into this because after all you're painting, after all you're creating an impression. Absolutely. Which begs the question that we've asked on just about every uh, interview we've done. Do you feel that modeling is art? Oh, shit, yeah. And and, oh. and I say that, I say that because, <laughs> um, Chris, I, I say that, <laughs> I say that because, I, I say that because, um, like any craft, in its highest expression, it becomes an art. And uh, which, uh, speaking as a comedian, you know, my other hat on as a comedian, we're often, people often ask, ask is comedy's an art? Absolutely. And and I think, speaking from my point of view, um, if it's going well, yes. If it's going <laughs> badly, absolutely not. Right. And and I, and I and I think, 
I think I think modeling because it can combine such if you're doing it really well, it combines such high levels of artisan craftsmanship that it transcends being simply craftsmanship or artisanry and enters art. But it but but then of course these things are all subject to taste. So you know, the, maybe someone. Uh, I mean, an example of model a model that's art that I would pick is the um, at Aramanche at the Museum for the Mulberry Harbour. They have a model of the Mulberry, um, uh, of all the way out past the caissons, the whole thing, and it goes, it breathes, it goes up and down like the sea, and the struts go up and down with it, and the little jeeps on it go up and down, and that to me is that thing's a work of art, right? Even though it's, even though. It's basically for twelve-year-old boys to go. Mm, Kirky, look at the tank. Ooh, look at the tanks in the ocean. And all that. <laughs> That's what it's actually for. But but do they not deserve works of art too? But it's a work of art because the thing goes up and down, and it somehow it amazingly transcends being just an itty bitty model and a thing that that really tells a story. Yeah, it tells a story, conveys a feeling, brings some emotion. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and aren't we all twelve-year-old boys at heart anyway? Well, that possibly that possibly is what's going on here. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like my reaction to that would be the same as any twelve-year-old boy. Oh, 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 yeah. Look at that! Yeah. Well, I mean, the last time I saw it, which was quite a while ago, I, I have to admit, you know, I, I got flashback to when I saw it in nineteen seventy-seven when I was when I was nine years old. Like, oh, holy cow! Look, this thing's going up and down. Amazing. Why isn't there more of it? You know. <laughs> All right. So let's transition to a different subject. Let's sure. talk about yeah. your podcast. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think, yes. I think we kind of thought this was going to be the other way around, where we were going to be talking about your other stuff way more than the <laughs> modeling stuff. But I want to keep talking well, about the modeling stuff. Well, I mean that. Well, that that I mean the the modeling has been stimulated enormously by the podcast, and in fact, um, so the podcast is called "We Have Ways of Making You Talk," and it's about it's about the Second World War, and it's me and a, a guy called James Holland who is a a multiply pub- published historian of a of a sort of new quite a new school of um uh of a way of looking at the second world war and we got together we've been friends several several many years now and basically if jim was in town to see his publisher he'd say he'd say do you want to come to the pub and talk about the war because he knows i'm interested <laughs> and and i'd say yeah sure so we'd sit in the pub and talk about the war and then and then off we go and he got he, someone asked him, is there anyone you'd like to do a, a podcast about the Second World War with? And he, he threw my name into the hat. And I made a program a long time ago about the last year of the war for, for the Discovery Channel, a long, long time ago. And I am really interested. My father sort of raised me on the Second World War as a subject. And like I said, I grew up in the 70s where, you know, The Great Escape was, was on our televisions um, probably every nine months. The Battle of Britain movie was on very, very often, you know, an era of spitfire glamour and all that. And um, but so what James and I do is, is we we we've got a variety of things going on. We will talk about a subject. We'll take people's questions. I mean, last year we did a whole week of stuff about Dunkirk, about the Dunkirk evacuation, the battle leading up to it. And uh, and then and then we did some Battle of Britain stuff or we did some stuff at Arnhem. But we go to places like the Tank Museum and talk about the technology we talked to economists. We talked to. We had such an interesting chat with a guy a couple of weeks ago, who or a couple of months ago, who is a um, he's a sociologist and he's interested in um, how weapons develop and are made, and he's he's written a really fascinating book about rifles because he says if you look at a rifle that's given to an infantryman, it can it can if you want pretty much tell you everything about that society 
and what that society thinks of soldiers, what it thinks of its soldiers, what it thinks of it's capable of in terms of manufacturing, what it regards war as, what it, you know, this whole panoply of things that come off a simple object, a basic object like a rifle, an everyday object like a rifle. And so we've, we've been sort of diving deep on, on, on stuff. And then on uh, once a week as well, we do a live cast where people can watch us talk about this stuff and answer questions. And we've, we're assembling a cast of friendly historians who come on to talk about stuff from all, from all, from all disciplines within Second World War history. So we've, we've got Eastern Front specialists. Like I say, we've, got, we've talked to some really fascinating people, some really interesting ways of looking at it, completely different ways of looking at things. I mean, I feel like, and we, when the, when the, when the lockdown started, we sort of doubled the content and I started doing audio books. So reading out of print stuff and, uh, and putting that out. And I feel like I'm doing a master's in second world war studies, like being caught up by this and swept along learning all this stuff and, and also taking on quite different perspectives. And interestingly, this is where it comes back to the modeling is the, is is the the question of armor, of German armor, of German technology, of German equipment, and then the sort of fanboyery that uh, surrounds it, and the uh, and the you know and the Veribu phenomenon, which is people who <laughs> can't can't hear a bad word said about the Wehrmacht, which is I think an an interesting attitude to the events of the Second World War and its participants, and all this sort of stuff, and just talking about the, you know, you look at a thing like the Tiger tank and you compare it to a thing like the Sherman tank and to apply the same thing this guy says about the rifle to those objects. Um, this is called Matthew Ford, this historian. I should name check him. But the way he looks at a rifle and says, what does this tell you about the society that's pr- produced it? If you apply that to a tank, all sorts of things start, f- start flying off it. And then also raise questions about for instance, well, why why did, and I go back to that Tamiya catalogue page, why were there so many variants of the Mark IV for me to model? That thing, the Verbalvind, the the Brumbar, the um the, the SP gun they did, the different the different the different, you know, the upgunned Mark IVs and the you know, all this sort of stuff. What's going on? What's the attraction of all this kit? Particularly when there's so much insanely cool allied kit as well. You know, you only have to look at 79th Armoured Division's uh, innovations in Avery, in flail tanks. I used to not understand why I couldn't get a flail tank when I was 12, because they were the coolest goddamn thing you'd ever seen, right? <laughs> as a as a solution to a problem, right? Okay, well, we'll take our standard tank. And that, that's why I also don't understand why there isn't a Tamiya one, because you just take a standard Sherman and then you make a, an adapter kit, you know, like a, like a fourth sprue or fifth sprue that goes on it, for which I would have paid... <laughs> totally top dollar right to build at the time i don't i sort of don't understand it and it drifts into this way people looked at the war and the this very peculiar thing that happened in the history and in the historiography and this is the thing we talk about a lot on the podcast that in 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 a really weird way even though the we always tell ourselves that the victors get to write the history in terms of the war and its technology and a lot of how it was fought, the losers got to write that history. And the, the Germans got to tell a story of their brilliant engineering and their, ta- their tactical brilliance that we're still hung up on. And the, the fact that you can buy so many, the fact that people buy so many Tigers and Mark IVs and make so many Tigers and Mark IVs, you know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, as we all know, what is it, 1,200, 1,400 Tigers are made, depending on your point of view. 
and 40,000 Shermans and 70,000 M3, M4 hulls laid down, right? But I'm sure in modeling terms, those flippers, figures are flipped. Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. You know, and the, and the Germans the Germans have the 40,000 Tigers they needed to win the Second yeah. World War. <laughs> and they probably run better. <laughs> and I'm sure they do. But but it's just, all of that historiography is so, so interesting and so fascinating and ties into NATO and ties into how you accommodate the Germans post-war. In Cold War terms, how you get West Germany to sort of come on side. And then also this classic military thing where what you do is you look you know you tend to look at the other side and what they did rather than maybe look at what you did right and certainly in british historiography there's there's a a long history of saying how brilliant the germans were and not really looking at well then how come you beat them how did you solve the problems what were the problems how did you face them down what were your answers and what were people thinking at the time which tends to be ignored an awful lot and that is really, really interesting. And it's interesting making models of these things. You know, when you get a tiger on it upside down and you try and get that interleaved suspension on um, and you compare it to the modular suspension on a Sherman, you can see why one's easy to maintain and mass produce and the other one is a complete nightmare. You know, it's it, it's all there. It's all laid there bare on your, on your, on your modeling table. It's this fantastic stuff. I, our buddy Matt Very much so, yeah. a really good article on this uh, on his website a few years ago called Fetishizing the Enemy. And he yeah. got into the statistics of the kit, the kits that are out there, and it's totally a thing. There is a preponderance yeah. of of Axis subjects, and he, when he wrote that article, it, it was like the internet was caught on fire. It was a total yeah. shitstorm. People were enraged uh, by you know at the idea, and you know of course there's the guys who were popping out of the woodwork saying I'm not a Nazi just because I built German tanks, and and it, it was uh, it was quite the well, conflagration. I know. I know, of course then, and of course you're not. The person saying that, of course you're not. But why Why have we ended up with exactly. this sort of hang-up? Why, why does it and, and, and And in the, you know, you'll read, you'll read serious articles about how, how at West Point people call their tanks panzers, you know, um, how, how hung up on the Wehrmacht people are in American military academia. And that's really interesting. And of course... Part of it, you could argue, is that, you know, the Duke of Wellington famously, when he was asked who the greatest general of all time was, he said Napoleon, because he was the guy that beat Napoleon. So he's kind of by, he's kind of by, out of false modesty saying, well, that guy, he was brilliant, but but the, la- the last person Napoleon ran into was me, and we all know the end result. So maybe there's some of that going on, but it's, but it's turned wholesale into tiger tanks are cool. And you talk to the people at the tank museum, and you know, their number one exhibit is is the tiger. And it is the only running tiger in the world. And that's interesting in itself. But, you know, for my money, the Firefly is a fascinating thing because the Allies think as soon as they run into the tiger in Tunisia, straight it goes straight back, right, how do we get a 17-pounder onto a, one of our existing chassis because we've got to fix this. We've got to fix this thing when we run into it, you know, not just next year, but now. How do we do it? And so they improvise this thing on the on the Sherman, on the on the existing chassis. They move the radio into an armored box behind the turret. They turn the gun on its side. They add twice the bafflers to deal with the recoil. They remove the lap gunner and they turn that into an ammunition store. And supposedly it's the Germans who are innovating in armor. Well, <laughs> strikes me, strikes me what you've got there is like, and obviously, I mean, the interesting thing about it is that this is all done in a great rush. So a lot of the, of the fireflies, when they first arrive, in, Ju- in June, in, uh, they arrive um, in the units in May 44 and then go into theatre in June 44. In June 44, the Sherwood Rangers, for instance, who are a, a British um, 
uh, armored regiment who've been artillery and then converted that well they start off as cavalry literally on horseback in Palestine at the start of the war then they're converted to artillery for the siege of Tobruk and then they're put into tanks so they go M3s they go M4s and they when they get their Shermans just when they get their fireflies don't know what to do with them they don't know whether you have them in their headquarters troop in in your reserve so when you run into some some heavy armor or something far away you know far enough away that you can fix it before it can fix you do you have them in a reserve or do you put one in each troop? And they, they, they end up, they put their, they put their um, Charlie tanks, they call it into, into the troop, into the separate troops. And basically he hangs back. And then when the guys in front run into anything serious, um, they, they call up the firefly, but no one, no one knows what to do with them. And supposedly the other thing is also supposedly the British reputation is for not really being able to adapt only ever doing what they're told, not having um, this Ausfrag tactic thing, which the Germans have, which is where everyone knows what to do. Um, uh, it, it, everyone knows that they have to improvise, that they have to use their nows. And in fact, the, this is what the British are doing. And because the optics on the Firefly at this point are all shit. They're the same optics as on the standard Sherman, but with this great big gun. So everyone's having to shoot this thing in circumstances that are far from ideal, but they still manage and they still achieve it. Again, you, uh, like I said, you look at this one object, the Firefly, and it starts to tell you all sorts of things that, that also don't tally with this idea that the Germans have got armor figured out. They're absolutely brilliant at armor. Their tanks are cool, baby. You know, the, the, the Allies are doing all this thinking and they're doing it on the hop. You know, you look at the hedge cutter, the, the, how smart that is, the improvisation that that involves. And then the fact that the idea is able to spread across two armies. And of course, the British and American army only talk to each other to a certain extent at this point, you know, that a piece of tech like that, that's improvised could just spread across two armies. Um, once they've figured it out dead quick and, and be sort of tactically, tactically um, critical to the point where it's strategically uh, effective. It's really, really interesting. And, you know, and again, supposedly it's the Germans with the neat armor and you only have to look at Avery at what they're doing with Churchill chassis um, and the reason we've got the Churchill chassis to do that is because there are the Sherman chassis because the Americans are producing so many. You know, we're able to then concentrate on Avery. And of course, Bradley wants Avery, but we can't make enough for him. You know, that's the thing. He puts in an order for, for, for bridging tanks and carpet laying tanks and all that stuff. And he can't get his hands on them because we haven't got enough, British haven't got enough chassis. You know, all these things tell you quite a different story from the one that's led, I think, people to fetishizing the, as you put, as your guy put it to fetishizing the Wehrmacht kit the German kit they're all very different stories and I you know I don't understand why I have to buy a resin adapter kit for a flail I don't know why everyone isn't making a flail tank because they're the coolest thing on the planet the interesting thing um, is that the all the old hat history or hoary old myths are very popular in modeling circles you know the old uh, five Shermans to one firefly and all the British and allied stuff with crap and all the German stuff with great it it dies really hard. Well, you were talking today about the um uh, in the, on the pod about uh do the British always stop for a cup of tea? Try yeah. finding a British tank crew figure that isn't holding a mug. It's nearly impossible yeah, yeah. because that myth sticks <laughs> yeah. around in modelling as well. That all they do all day is stand yeah. around drinking tea. Yeah, well, if you're standing around, you probably are drinking tea from the British Army because you're taking good advantage of the stop to deliver yourself a little moment of comfort. It's it's that simple. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the chieftain has a, a and the, you know, whatever the challenger. So I don't really go past <laughs> Centurion really has a tea making kit in the turret, you know, um, uh, <laughs> is it really? yeah, yeah, it's a hot, it has a hot, hot, 
<laughs> yeah, it's a hot beverage, hot beverage boiling vessel thing, you know, with, with an element, and like so they can so they can brew up. That's hilarious. You know. No heat, no ventilation, no insulation, yeah. but you can make a pot of tea. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, I mean, a the, 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 potty under the commander's seat too. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, because <laughs> because in because in the in during the war they were you know they were using shell cases to to defecate and urinate into. So you know, yeah. The thing is, I you know the the. the for instance, the the five tanks to one tiger thing, right? What you could you could look at that isn't oh no you know there's the the, the the only solution to a tiger is five Shermans. No, we've got five Shermans. Yeah. To every tiger, and the Germans in particular, you know, once the Battle of Normandy turns into a meat grinder, and basically the, the British at one end are doing those colossal cracks, core size attacks, army size attacks on the German line, and the Germans. The Germans are trying to rustle gear up from wherever they can, and they're always putting out putting fires out. And obviously, from the Allied perspective, you've got all these um, you've got all these uh, operations with names that you know, like Goodwood and Epsom and uh, Jupiter and all these uh, and Charnwood and uh, and all the uh, Bluecoat and all these exercises that have names that, that, that our historiography you could look at. And but if you're Germans are the only you don't know that Bluecoat's about to start or Epsom. You're, you're like, oh, Christ, they're coming at us on that hill now. And so they rustle up the gear they've got and they take it over there and they're outnumbered. So, of course, it's five Shermans to a tiger. And, you know, I don't know about you. I prefer those odds. <laughs> it's, it, 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 you know, which army would you rather be in in that set of circumstances? You know, anyway. But 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 I think the problem with the, the problem with that is that's like a factoid that actually bears no relation to any tactical uh, stuff that's going on. Uh, at least of all German tactical stuff that's going on, because there are no tigers out on their own. It's silly. You know, they aren't doing that anyway. They aren't doing that either. I think at one point there were 12 tigers in Normandy. They can't be everywhere at once. Whereas no, Germans can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And only yeah, three of those exactly. were running. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. <laughs> precisely. Yeah, and none of them none of them had shading in their, in their paintwork. Either. I mean, the, the... <laughs> or a bucket they, on the they, back. They were, all, they were all painted with, with last minute desperate uh, paint supplies or yeah. released from the factory with nothing but primer on them, right? Or, or, or whatever, you know, I mean, <laughs> the other thing is, is a vast amount of this is essentially unknowable as well, because yeah. what you don't do when you're on, you know, when, when you have, I don't know, 30 core coming at you um, over the hill, you don't, you don't get the painting manual out and do what the manual tells you for uh, spick and span parade ground maintenance of your equipment. Do you, you, you you've got other, other things to worry about, like fighter bombers and yabos and and so on. Anyway, I mean, I, the, 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 I th but the, I think the historiography around this is all really, really interesting, and and dates back to I think 1947, when uh, this guy Littlehart, who was a British journalist who um, had been into the idea of armoured warfare before the war, sat a load of German generals down and got them to tell their version of events, that then lodged into the historiography, that then that then. Uh, you know, all about, oh, if, if, and a lot, they were basically all saying, if it hadn't been for Hitler, we'd have won the war. And when you look at the, you look at the crunch, the numbers and everything, that's, that's just, that's a nonsense. And when you actually look at how OKW and OKH worked in conjunction with each other, it's also a nonsense. And also how many of those generals just did everything he told them to do. And then after the event claimed they were thinking something different, you know, and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. Uh, but that's the beginning. That is the beginning of this thing that turns into the Wehrmacht uh, were tactically excellent and their kit was brilliant. That's the genesis of it, I think. This is such good stuff. And I, I keep I keep thinking that, 
you would find so much good material for your comedy routine <laughs> in model making groups on just some of these topics that we've been going over. That's a niche audience, though. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe uh, if there's a modeler's Christmas party, I could do some very niche. Um... <laughs> oh, it, would be, it would be hilarious. They need to get you to do a show, a show at like uh, at like Telford or. You know, something like that. It would be phenomenal. That's a nice idea, actually. That's it not would, bad idea. It would be phenomenal because you've touched on so many things that that model makers get, you know, just fight about constantly. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and it's 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 good stuff. I, this there is so much gold in this interview. I, I don't think anybody expected this. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very I much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, the really interesting. I mean, the thing is, is I grew up on these on this stuff. You know, um, and it's only in the it's only really by by reengaging with the history properly in the last kind of 10 years that I've come to understand that a lot of this stuff doesn't really doesn't explain anything is the is the uh, very often you, you, you have these historical interpretations of things and you just think, yeah, that's fine. But it doesn't explain it doesn't actually explain the end result. It doesn't explain how we ended up how they ended up where they did. A really great example of this is the is the Battle of Britain. When you actually examine the Battle of Britain, and and this is a lot to do with the fact that the Second World War is also not not just a historical event. It's a, it's a, it's a it's a, a, a current alive mythical cultural event in British society, in a, in a way that it, in a way that it also is, for instance, in Russia, where the Great Patriotic War. After all, they don't call it the Second World War because they lost the first one, so they they've struck that from the record. Right, the British relationship with the second world war is absolutely fascinating and alive and ongoing and and so the story of the battle of britain that, that's the popular version is poor old plucky us on our own and um, with just the last few spitfires we had those brave boys and they saw off the evil nazi war machine through pluck guts and improvisation and in actual fact by the end of the second world war we had more spitfires than we started it by the end of the battle of britain we had more spitfires than we started it with so what right the luftwaffe never recovers its strength to pre-May uh, 1940, or certainly hasn't recovered its strength to that level by the time Barbarossa starts because of the kicking it takes in the Battle of Britain. And also the fighter command uh, system that Dowding had put in place was designed to deal with exactly the incursion, kind of incursion that the Germans attempt, the air battle that the Germans attempt, early warning systems, observer corps, RDF, radar, the whole thing is designed to deal with what the Germans then do but in fact it's designed to deal with the germans doing it like the germans have a clue and the <laughs> germans have first of all first of all the germans are surprised by anybody else else that they are where they are by the end of june 1940 they've defeated france they're as amazed as anyone their air force is designed as a tactical air force for fighting a you know a souped up first world war and that's not what's happening now they don't have a strategic um, bomber component they know nothing about the RAF. They literally know nothing about, about it, not just numbers, but what the different air, air bases are. So when they attack the airfields, and, you know, the traditional telling of the story is they attack the airfields, and fortunately at the last minute they change their minds about the attack, attacking the airfields and the radar stations, and they switch to, they switch to the city, to London. Well, yeah, but they, but the, they put one airfield out of action, one radar station out of action. They were attacking the wrong airfields because they didn't know what any of them were. You know, blah, 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 blah. And in fact, it's the other way around. It's the, it's the ruthless British war machine <laughs> that deals with the plucky Luftwaffe that, that, that improvises <laughs> and, is, and is fed into it piecemeal and essentially not destroyed, but reduced as a weapon to the point where it's ineffective. So 
it's it's probably a, you know we've been viewing this like a reverse negative of what the story really is and but no one wants to hear that because we like the idea that plucky little us saw off the evil nazis whereas in fact germany over writing checks it can't cash runs into the world's biggest empire with the most efficient fighter system that had ever been developed and as a result and suffers as a result you know and the, the, I, no one likes that story it makes the british sound calculating and sort of like a power player and and, and an empire and all those, all those things that um aren't as cool as being the underdog basically and that's really really interesting and I, you know that then feeds into the rest of how people look at the second world war i think it's super interesting and i, I have a question i want to ask you because i i'm yeah, sure i have figured out from listening to your podcast that you i mean you're a history major right from college you've got yeah. a very deep level of understanding of all this stuff I, i'm a big fan of jimmy doolittle and i've heard yeah. i've read that his uh uh, pressure to introduce high octane fuel had a yeah. major, I mean, obviously had a major impact on American aviation, but I've also read that it had a major impact on RAF aviation and that it really played a role in British fighter superiority. Is that true? Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and what, what's really interesting is one, because one of the things that, one of the things that people like pe- people have also tried to do in the historiography is like force a wedge between, the, the allies and how well they work together. And of course, the interesting thing is that France and the UK and the British Empire were actually formally allies during the Second World War. There was no alliance between the, the UK and the US the, or the Empire and the US. It was it was a coalition and it was called, they called themselves the coalition. And then they ended up calling themselves the United Nations. But there was no formal allegiance, which I think is really interesting. But nevertheless, there was exactly this sort of um, cross-contamination, cooperation, and all this sort of stuff, and actually remarkably few um, examples of people falling out with each other, and remarkably few big disagreements, and and an awful lot of accommodation of different people, their personalities and their and their ways of doing things. You would look at the war in North Africa. Once the Americans enter via torch, and that their air air commitment is gigantic at this point. They they put this gigantic air commitment in, into North Africa, and the British have perfected. With, well, rather, you've got to call it I mean, on the podcast. We call it Duke Dominions UK Empire because there's no easy ac- acronym for it. So there's a New Zealand officer in the RAF, a guy called Mary Cunningham, who's figured out how to use tactical air power. And the Americans come to him and go, tell us, explain how to do this. We need to know because you're getting this right, which is not often the impression you get. There's the idea that the allies are at loggerheads, that it's all on thin ice, that it's all thank God for you know, um, uh, common sense prevailing in the end. That's not the case. Everyone's really working together really, really, you know, brilliantly. And that the example you give there is te- technological cross-pollination, exactly that. Do little going, you need to, you need to sort your fuels out. This is what, this is what we're doing. This is what you should do. And it, yeah, of course. And it's, and it all goes, and it goes the other way too, you know, um, cavity magnetrons go in the other direction. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Americans, for instance, look at the way Bletchley Park works and copy it. They go, we can't believe how they're doing this. This is amazing. This industrialization of code breaking, we absolutely have to um, emulate that. And so do. And, and you know, you look at it now, that the, even now, um, uh, that's what's going on in code breaking, these enormous server farms that, um, that the CIA run, where they're, you know, they're using to crack one bloke's iPhone. It's that idea that you in, industrialize the effort and poor resources into it, which is the British way of doing it. You know, I think it's, 
that collaboration, that cooperation is the really interesting thing, far more interesting than, you know, Patton thought Monty was a bit of a twit <laughs> because, because, you know, that's, that's a fair judgment. And also, it, you know, Patton's not exactly got his whistle clean in that regard either. No. So, you, you know, the, the, they're, they're both showmen, you know, whatever. And I think it's the cooperation that's the fascinating thing and the, um, and the really, really interesting thing. And, and that's a perfect example, the Doolittle. And, and then later, thing. like with uh, the manufacturer of Merlins migrating yep. from, from Rolls-Royce to Packard. Yeah. And the whole story yeah. of Packard looking at the tolerances and going, hey, guys, wait a minute. We can make this thing much more mass producible. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. And, and, and Avro in Canada, even with the Canadians, Avro in Canada, take one look at the way that Avro in in uh, in Britain make the Lancaster and they go, I don't know why you're using rivets for this. You should just use screws. Um, there, that'll be easier. And so you can tell a Canadian Lancaster because it's all screwed together rather than riveted together. And apparently that that's the difference. And it's, and, and it's everyone looking at each other, other's ideas and incrementally improving them. And that's really interesting. You know, it's not, it's not allies, you know, that you, there are books, I think there's, there are books called allies at war, you know, all about, Oh, no one gets on. And it's not, it's not really that. It doesn't really, you know, you've got to find that. You've got to go looking for that. It's there. You know, it, uh, you just made a bunch of guys bunch go of... go throw rocks at their Lancaster models because they have rivets instead of screws. It's <laughs> <laughs> a new thing. Screw counters. Please, I don't want anyone anyone to smash anything up on my account. <laughs> Great stuff. Great stuff. What we are getting close to the hour, and I feel like we could keep going yeah. for another hour. But oh yeah. Yeah, don't worry. I can talk forever. Well, we could listen forever. This is fantastic stuff, and I know Thank our you. listeners are going to be stoked about this. I mean that. I mean, you know, Chris, your specialty being Churchill's and all that. Um, yeah, once upon a time. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, the the book, the books, the books you sent me are, are absolutely fascinating. I just, I just, you know, I look at the, I look at some of those things, and I think, Christ, I'll never, I'll never get there. But it's, you know, it's something to something to aim at that that the, the standard. But I mean. You know, I was I was one of those people because I grew up on all this stuff that thought that the Churchill was a was slow and ponderous and undergunned and all that. But you look you look at you look at the accounts, you look at the history of the thing in action, and it's an incredibly effective piece of kit, and it does exactly what it's meant to. And the men love it, and the Americans, when they get their hands on them, love them too. You know, and it's been it's been. I think one of the things you have to do when you look at history, you absolutely have to do when you look at history is, is be prepared to be prepared to say, you know, what, I was wrong about that. Or the stuff I thought I knew about that, I was wrong. You have to be because otherwise, otherwise there's kind of no point studying it. There's no point in, in investigating it. There's no point looking at it because it, it comes to us through so many channels now, especially, you know, like a TV program will love to tell you that it's five, five Shermans to a tiger because you can do a neat, neat gra computer graphic with that. But, you know, delve in, read the after battle reports about armor effectiveness in something like Totalize or something like Veritable, and you'll see what's actually going on. And that's the that's the that's but you've got to go into it be, be, being prepared to go. Cripes, I was wrong about that. I never knew. Well, it's the same with everything. You get it in modeling too. If someone says there's something wrong with your model, you've got a choice. You can either kind of, I mean, if you don't care if there's something wrong, that's fine. That's not a problem to your model. Not, yeah, yeah. you know, not an issue. But I found a long time ago, if I say to myself, well, okay, I'm learning something here. Do I really want to get upset about it or do I want to actually learn something? And it's yeah. the same with everything. Being prepared to be wrong is just fantastic. It's brilliant. Yeah. 
It's liberty. Every yeah. day you learn something new. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly right. And I think you may be uh, maybe being more modest than you should because just listening to the way you talk about how you're, you know, developing your techniques and exploring the materials and 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 looking for the, you know, the finishes. Your your thinking is very much like the masters in this game. Uh, oh, thank I, you. <laughs> I, I mean, it's 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 totally true. I don't think either of these other guys would disagree with me on that. And it, it makes me wonder if you are looking at the work of guys like Mike Rinaldi and Adam Wilder and Martin Kovac. Uh, I mean, I think if you're not, well, you know what, enjoy. you know what, I. I've not looked at a lot of stuff and, and that, that goes back to when I would have been in, you know, 10 or 11 and seeing Verlinden pictures of Verlinden things and thinking, well, that's impossible. I can't, I can't ever, I can't ever achieve that. I can't ever get close to that. It was, I used to be sort of intimidated uh, uh, by the artistry and, and also by the, obviously by the fact um, I was doing it on my pocket money. Yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. Hell, I can't, I can't get close to that. But, but yeah, maybe I, maybe I should have a bit more of a look because really what I'm trying to do is like have the box of the stuff. I mean, I keep meaning to, I keep meaning to, because, you know, the salt with the acrylic is such an interesting thing because obviously that's going to cause o- osmotic reaction and all this sort of stuff. I haven't, what I haven't tried yet. Being being British, I haven't tried vinegar. I want salt and vinegar on this. See what the vinegar, <laughs> see what, see what an acid does to the does to the paint, how it behaves, particularly when it's when it's drying. Might um, be good uh, for chips. So, well, it might be good. It might be good for chips. You know exactly, exactly. Right. You, might, you for, might be salt. on the verge of discovering <laughs> one of those techniques, like the hairspray chipping technique, that will become. Yeah, who knows? Time. Who knows? I mean, you know, salt and vinegar for your chipping. Yeah, it's it's all there, isn't it? <laughs> I keep meaning to do it and then don't. I need a I need a, a, a pipette or something. I need to steal one of the wife's pipettes. Great stuff. You know, I, I'm I'm just listening to you and 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 you know, like I'm a I'm a fan of Joe Rogan's podcast, and I, I hope yeah. this is a, I hope this is a compliment. You know, he he interviews lots of, of comedians, and you remind me so much of Bill Burr. Uh, oh, your, your, wow. your your comedy, uh, you know, and but 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 the fact that there's just so much, I'm like, you're into so many other things. I mean, you were talking about playing the drums, your knowledge yeah. of history, your depth. I mean, you know, Bill is a baker and he flies yeah. helicopters. I just, you know, yeah. I, I, I'm struck by the similarity and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm just curious kind of how you got into comedy. I think that's an interesting thing too. Oh, well, that's because I did some acting at school. And then when I got to university, um, I, I, my, what I had of a sort of performer's ego couldn't cope with the idea that I'd do an audition for some other student who didn't know uh, what he was doing, you know, cause I knew I didn't know what I was doing. So I expected that my contemporaries would be as clueless as me. And the idea of failing an audition for someone like me was too much, but going out in front of an audience and trying to get laughs out of them, that's like kind of, that's an honest bargain. Uh, it's the way I saw it. And so you, you get up, they laugh, you're doing it right. Whereas you go to an audition, you read it and the guy doesn't like it. That's a different that's a different thing for my ego to deal with. So that so, and there was a really amazing scene uh, when I went to university of, of, of other comedians, of people writing and producing stuff themselves. And I just jumped into that. And then by the time I'd finished there, I was sort of desperate to leave and go and try and be a be a comic. And there was an amazing in the nineties in the UK. There was there was an amazing club scene for if you wanted to become a stand up. Just the most incredible scene. And that that's 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 it's as simple as that. And then you know. I did my 10,000 hours um, uh, of playing clubs um, to, to try and get good at it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I always think, 
I always think you can't get to 50. I'm 53 now. You can't get to my age and only be interested in one thing. That would be that would be kind of a, a crime. Honestly, well, most people are, though. You know. <laughs> well, to but, tie yeah. together the, uh, the, the comedy question and the drums in the background, um, I, I didn't see a gong back there. No gong? No, there is. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's better rent one. Ever, I only ever rent gongs. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a, I think that's, a, that's a reference to Taskmaster, right? Because if, if yeah. listeners yeah. have not watched Taskmaster, oh. get, you're doing it wrong. you got to go check it out. That's the uh, most amazing show to be on because there are no lines to learn. There's no wrong way to do it. There's no retakes. You know, they, 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 they knock on the door. They say, we're ready for you now. And they give you the task. You, you go out and you read the task and you try and do it. It's the, it's just the most brilliant job. And I did it, I did it um, uh, four or five years ago now, or three, four years, four years ago now. And they only, we only did five episodes of tasks and now they do 10 episodes, 10 weeks. And my, the, my envy for the people who are on it now, because it's just the most, the most fun job in television. And if anyone doesn't know, the listeners that don't know, you, you open an envelope and there's a task like a, a good example is propel this pea on this red carpet as far as you can. And you open that and you read that. And some of them thought the thing they had to do was literally propel the pea up the, as far along the carpet as they could. But what I did, one of the other contestants, he, he rolled the pea up in the carpet and put it in a wheelbarrow and ran around with it. And they measured the distance. I rolled it up, put it in a wheelbarrow and called a taxi and <laughs> and drove drove 20 miles up the road. Um, it was great. Yeah, out of the with box. the pee in a taxi. Yeah. <laughs> but that that that's that, that that's the kind of that's the vibe of the show and it's um uh it's five different comedians all being being set the same tasks and seeing how they all respond to them. And it's a, it's the most amazing uh experience. It really is. I mean, I know that you look at the uh, the current seasons with with more tasks ahead of them, yeah. with a little bit of sadness and envy. But for people like me who are just loyal viewers, that was uh, just more, 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 more. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks very much. It's one of those few shows as well that my my kids my kids were totally into. So me being on it was kind of like finally, Dad did something cool. <laughs> <laughs> My son loves it, absolutely adores it. Ah, brilliant. Talking of comedy, you're on tour again, yeah? I'm on tour again at the end of the year. We're in the, in the fall, in the autumn. So September, we start going out again. We, you know, fingers crossed, um, because, because this tour, we've moved half a dozen times since March last year. Yeah. So, um, so. Well, hopefully it's know, heading in the right we'll, direction. We'll see. Where can people find out about uh, where you're playing? Um, Thepublandlord.com. Um, uh, is where to find my touring dates. The uh, podcast is We Have Ways of Making You Talk, which is on Acast or Apple or any you know, and Spotify and all the sort of all the sort of standard podcast outlets. If people uh, want to get into that, because and there's a we've done an awful lot. There's over 300 episodes to chew your way through. I have to say, I'm one of the Patreon members on the Independent Company, and I really have to recommend that people do that too, because obviously you've got all the great free content from the podcast. But a huge amount of other stuff, including, of course, the wonderful live cast, which I believe yeah. is on Monday night. Yes, we move that to Mondays. Yeah, people really should, should get along, and it costs virtually nothing. And uh, and check yeah. that out. There's some really good stuff on there as well. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic to listen to that. That's why you're building a model. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, good. That's nice to know. That's cool. That's really cool. I did one live cast. I did. I did like try and build a tiger whilst talking to James, but it didn't really work out. (laughs) And and don't you also have have a charity that you do work with? Yes, I've been doing a lot of work with a charity called DKMS, um, and they're a blood stem cell donation service. So, um, because my I, I have a nephew who's very sick with a with a blood cancer, a childhood leukemia, leukemia, and the only known cure is what's called a stem cell transplant and a blood stem cell transplant. And what we want people to do is go to the DKMS site, and there's there's one in there's one in the US as well as as in in the UK and Poland and Germany, I think Australia. Um, dkms.org.uk is the British one and you register to be a blood stem cell donor uh, they send you a swab pack you do your swabs you put them in the post you send them back and you go on to basically a database and if they need you they call you and they and you go in and donate your your uh, blood stem cells and it's which is like a two-hour thing like giving blood and then there's every chance you might save someone's life or buy them buy them time with their family so um Very cool. I'm, that that that's the thing I'm involved in yeah that's fantastic. You're a busy guy. We, I try, and there's the band, but we, we we haven't got time. We haven't got the time to talk about the band. Um, we have to get you back. We're gonna have to get you back. Why not? Here, uh. Why not? Why not? It'd be interesting to it'd be interesting to talk about techniques once I've d- discovered some more. <laughs> well, let's set a date. We 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 got to get Why you not? back on here. There's just so much more to talk about. Uh, it's and this has been a lot of fun. But we know you're a busy guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks very much. It's a real pleasure, gents, to talk to you. Um, it's been uh, a real treat, Al. Thank you. Yeah, really Anytime. enjoyed this. Okay. Thanks, Al. Thanks, lads. Model makers, if you're like me, you're constantly looking for supplies and kits, right? My go-to source for all the essentials is the title sponsor of the Sprue Cutters Union podcast, Hobby World USA. Hobby World USA carries kits, tools, books, and paint brands from Abtilong 502 to Zero. (laughs) See what I did there with the whole A to Z thing? Hobby World is also one of only two suppliers in the United States to carry my personal favorite paint, MRP. And if you're looking for something that's not in their inventory, there's a good chance the owner, Matt Bowl, can find it for you. Matt is one of us. He's a model maker and he participates in the community on a regular basis and is always willing to answer questions. I should also note that while he's a great source for those of us in the United States and Canada, he will also ship worldwide. So, get on over to HobbyWorldUSA.com. That's HobbyWorld-USA.com and check them out for all your model making needs. All right, gangsters, uh, as anticipated, that was a wonderful conversation with the great and powerful Al Murray. Uh, I just I know that after that interview, I was just kind of buzzing because it was just it was just cool. It was cool to to find out that he was that, that he was the kind of model maker that that he is and to find out that he just has a real intense passion uh, for history and that his, you know, that his approach to, to, to the model making part of it is just so free spirited. And I love that. And I hope that listeners are going to pick that up and run with yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. His experimentation with his materials is something that I think a lot of us take for granted. Um, you know, we use our materials in the way that we know how to use them. We don't 
uh, we don't push their limits very often or, or try completely different things. And the fact that Al's sitting at his kitchen table, you know, mixing Tamiya paints and vinegar uh, is absolutely kind of crazy. But at the same time, you know, uh, who would have thought uh, 20 years ago that you could, you know, spray a model with hairspray and put a coat of paint on it and, and achieve chipping? Um, so, yeah. So he's, that's the he's spirit. Just try shit out. Yeah. Have fun. If it goes wrong, so fucking what? Yeah. It's just a plastic model. It's not yep. real life. Toys don't, for grown-ups. Yeah. Don't be afraid to try new things. Don't listen to the gatekeepers who tell you that that's the wrong way to do it. And, you know, do your thing. Like like, like uh, our buddy Matt McDougal says a lot, the key is to both give a fuck and not give a fuck. And, and I think that, you know, what that speaks to is figure out who to listen to, figure out what to listen to, and the rest of it, just ignore it. Yeah, tune it out if you can. I like the fact he he avoids the books and the internet because he's he's discovering it for himself. Then he's not, you know, he's not following other people. He's I mean, maybe he'll get to a point where he wants to do all that. But I, I like the fact he's made that conscious decision and that he's exploring it for himself. There's a real spirit of uh, discovery about that. I was honestly a little jealous yeah. of that because I remember when I came back into the hobby like six years ago. I was watching every YouTube video and and reading everything I could get my hands on and everything seemed like this new avenue of discovery and a new challenge. And, you know, here I am six years, seven years later, and it's, you know, kind of like Tracy was talking about before. It's still fun. It's still beautiful, but it's not as much of a challenge. And and I miss that. Yeah, you don't get those plateaus. You know, the more experience you get, the less plateau there is in the hobby. You know, we, when you learn how to control a wash, boom, that's a plateau. We're like, Oh shit, I got this skill, bro. And then, you know, the next thing like you're, <laughs> you're accumulating these skills and you're learning how to use them and how to master them. And those things like lead you to little plateaus, but the more skills you get, the further apart those plateaus are. And you kind of, you know, you yearn for them uh, a little bit. Often there's more a- skills you get you can only notice in retrospect where you've improved. It's only by looking back at a few models and you think, oh shit, I got, you know, that improved over time. Yeah. But yeah, it's not like that big that big discovery when you're first getting into it. And like you say, you, you crack that technique or you find a new modeler whose work you really admire and, you know, that it's that you've never seen anything like that before because you don't know what all the models look like and you don't go to the international shows and that kind of thing. And I feel like Al's hitting plateaus left, right and center because he's, He's carving his own path, you know? That's that's pretty great. There's there's a little bit of, of a tendency to take these skills for granted. You know, like like you get to a point, like you were saying, Chris, you know what the washes are gonna do, you understand the materials, you know what to expect, and then when it does the thing that you expected it to do, you're like, Yeah, cool, that's what I expected it to do. And and, and you know, it's uh, there's a sense of loss, I think, in that. Uh, because it's not quite as exciting. And I don't, you know, I, I don't know how you maintain that, but I think you have to sort of shift your focus to being, you know, fully into the creative process and, and enjoying that result. We could take on new genres. That's one way of doing it. Yeah. I think the simplest way to do it is, is to just recognize when you're pleased about the outcome of something. You know, like take the time to like when you throw a wash on something and like you get just the right consistency of the wash that you've made yourself and it zips around those details and it doesn't 
you know, it doesn't uh, pull out too much. And you're just like, yeah, that fucking, yeah, that, that was awesome, you know? There's something to be said for not having shit go wrong on you all the time. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes boring process is good. Yeah, it didn't fuck up. <laughs> you know, don't, don't take that so much for granted that you become complacent, convinced that, that it, that just because it works good for you every single time you've done it for the last 50 years or whatever it is, that it's the only way and there's no way for it to be better because then you are on your way to becoming a gatekeeper. Well, I mean, always, always be trying, always be looking for something different. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, you're on your way to being a gatekeeper. If, if you're telling people that that's the only way to do it, you know, I don't want to say that people who have found a way to use their materials in a way that makes them happy. Uh, and that's the way they do it over and over again. They're not gatekeepers. They're just, you know, they've got a technique down. I think I'm just saying that's kind of the gateway drug to being a gatekeeper because, yeah. you know, you're convinced that this is, is, is going to work. Every yeah. Time. I mean, yeah, I think draw the yeah, line between absolutely. complacency and gatekeeping though. I mean, yeah. you know, we all get complacent with our skills. That's why I was saying like the next time you do something, which is uh, a little routine for you and it all goes right. Just take a moment to think like, God, there was a time in my life when that was a struggle, you know, that that was, that was something that was hard for me to do. And now it's a skill that I have that I can apply whenever I want. And, you know, fuck, that looks good, man. I'm happy with that. You know, take time to be happy with, the things that you're doing right in front of you on your bench. But the difference is you always remain open-minded. There's always that part of your brain that knows that there might be yeah. another way out there. There might be another material out there. There might be another. Yeah, but I'm also stubborn, so I'm not trying any of it. <laughs> My most hated phrase in the world is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Oh, if it ain't broke, yes. it can probably be done yeah. better. That's what it should be. Can you imagine if the whole world ran on that well philosophy. we wouldn't be talking here on the internet yeah we'd be in cave no yeah. we certainly wouldn't we certainly would not absolutely all right well guys i don't know about you dudes but i feel like we have uh, once again covered a lot of ground it's been good fun conversation uh, but uh i'm sure you know tracy he has like a real job he's got shit to do chris <laughs> obviously has a book to write and many many more of um, those uh, i need to get renault suspension if uh, can't we just keep this going? <laughs> All right, get us out of here, Tracy. Well, folks, thanks for listening, and don't touch that dial. This show was brought to you by our sponsors and by our patrons, Grant Tony Mabry, George Brain, Devin Poor, and Mark Casilia. You too can become a patron of the show by going to Sprue Cutters U buzzsprout.com and clicking on the heart which will take you to our patreon page alternatively you can go to www.patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n and sign up on the sprue cutters union page to become a patreon of the show thank you for support it helps us keep going and pay the bills and bring more quality modeling content to listeners 